Hello, everybody. It's Tyler Willis. I'm one of the creators of Anti-Pessimist in this conversation series. It's a little bit of a weird conversation series. This is a podcast that is usually only published to members. Occasionally, we publish a public episode. However, the reason we do that is because we've been able to create a vetted community of people that we know are going to engage in good faith. And that means that we can attract guests to go into issues they might not normally feel comfortable talking about publicly. So we'll cover things from racial issues to gender issues to money, sex, and politics, all of the things that might be a little bit scary to talk about. If this is the first time you've ever heard one of these, I have to start with a directive. For the next hour or two, Turn off the cynical part of your brain. Turn off the negativity that is common in internet culture today. And instead, listen with an open mind and an open heart. You don't have to believe everything. You don't have to become a fervent cheerleader. You don't have to turn off your brain. But you do have to engage in good faith. If you can do that, then let's go ahead and get started with today's episode. Hey, everybody. Today, I am joined by Nathaniel Kolak. And Nathaniel's uh, been kind of a, a longtime acquaintance and friend. We talked, I guess... I don't know, maybe four or five years ago the first time, or maybe I'm just compressing time with how fast everything seems like it's going, uh, but <laughs> met when I was uh, the uh, CMO at Hired, and, and Nathaniel's an, an expert on people operations and is running a consultancy that is focused on helping teams upgrade their processes and and kind of procedures around people operations, help build a better people organization. And uh, he's got a lot of lessons, both from the startup world, as well as from the campaign world. He's the head of people for Hillary Clinton's campaign for president. Uh, so I'm super excited to dig in. And with that, we'll go ahead and get started. Nathaniel, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's ha- I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Tyler. Absolutely. Before we dive in, I think it'll be helpful for folks to have a little bit of a kind of foundation on you and your background. So you, you've obviously got a kind of a specialist vibe now when it comes to things like people operations and recruiting and management and all of that. Um, but how did you kind of get to the point where you are today? What's your What's been the kind of narrative arc of your life and career? Yeah, the path. Well, it's a very interesting, I think it's somewhat unusual. So I'll, I'll take a, a high level pass and then we can dig in where you think is, is most interesting. But so first of all, um, born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I went to college at the University of Vermont. And in college, I studied economics and ecology, actually. So I was very interested in the relationship between kind of human society and what we are doing to the planet and there's a lot of similarities actually between economic systems and ecological systems. So that was my background. When I left college, I was really fixated on this concept of meaningful work. And I would say it's interesting. I was not a, I think I I would say I had ambition, but I was not super dialed on, for example, like a high octane job search or something. Um, So I was, I was really focused more on environmental issues and, I'll come back to you later kind of why I think it's interesting that I was not at that time as savvy as, you know, I think I am now about kind of the world of, I don't know, high business and in startups and, and, and even politics. So at the time I actually went back to Pittsburgh and, and my first job was working for a home energy uh, efficiency consultancy. And it was like one guy, it was like a you know, small shop and that company went out of business about, uh, about three, I think it was like three months or six months after I, joined him. So very quickly was, as I now put it, like in the wilderness. Um, And, you know, like I said, I was an ambitious person, but in the wilderness. And so over the next two years, actually bounced around did all kinds of projects. I was writing grants. I was doing business plans. 
for different companies. I was doing construction. I was installing rain barrels. Um, I switched to a different company for a while and was installing uh, insulation in people's attics. So everything was in the bent of kind of generally speaking, like climate or environmental like space, but it was a real range of things. So that was sort of this ongoing adventure. So then I went to graduate school in Sweden, which I can say more about that and why that, why I did that. But that program was a master's in essentially sustainable development. So it was like the strategy behind how companies and organizations can move towards resilience and sustainability, something like a green MBA. But actually a lot of the work there was focused on strategy. And so I got really interested in kind of the, what I'd say the principles of strategy separately from like the, you know, the aim and the, the goal of sustainability, but just in general, like the principles of strategy. And it was this kind of fortuitous thing out of that program. I sort of fumbled w- with a friend into starting a recruiting company. Um, and the reason was because I was trying to get at this concept of meaningful work. And I had this sort of epiphany while I was studying in Sweden. It was all these case studies that we were reading about, you know, successful company projects. I'm thinking of like when IKEA like integrated sustainability into their supply chain and managed to make a ton of money and, you know, Im- improve their impact. All of those case studies, they all started like kind of without realizing it with this, with this sense of like a certain person on a certain team who really cared about X, Y, or Z, like made the case or, you know, did the pitch or like, wouldn't stop persisting to, you know, make sure this thing happened. And so it just clicked where it's like, okay, so the right people in the right places and in the right roles, that's like the magic that can transform companies and can, you know, later on in my career, I'd see, you know, can, can win campaigns or can accomplish impossible things. So so we started this recruiting company and I moved to Boulder, Colorado, uh, went through the Unreasonable Institute, which was a uh, accelerator at the time. And really from first principle, you know, no one had ever trained us, like when none of us had done recruiting before. So very quickly, I think within like six months, there were five of us, you know, we, we managed to kind of grow into a five person company, largely bootstrapped. We did raise a little bit of money, but it, it wasn't like a, you know, wasn't like a, like a VC style or you know, even like a seed style uh, raise friends and family kind of thing. And we just learned from first principles, like what is a search? Uh, what is the, what are the key components? How does recruiting work? What's going on in the systems? And, you know, we read a ton and talked to a lot of mentors, but none of us had done this work before. So we basically learned by experience, starting with fairly junior roles, but then moving up into the org chart, you know, increasingly, you know, towards executive search. And I ran that company. It was called Rework um, for, about four years and very interesting. One of life's inflection points moments, um, four years in, I got asked to, to run people, to run the uh, talent function at Hillary for America. So this was the first political thing I'd ever done, but you know, I'm, I'm sort of one of those people who always got a kick out of politics. And I don't know, ever since I was little, like it was sort of like on my mental radar, but I just hadn't, I never had like volunteered for a campaign before or something. So maybe we can talk about exactly what happened there, but the, the quick story now is I did, I did take that. So I, you know, had sort of a tough conversation with my co-founders and moved on from rework and took the, the Hillary position was, you know, that was such a wild experience. I think we'll get into it, but the, the, the short sense is we hired about 4,500 people in 15 months, first 800 at HQ in Brooklyn, which was very similar to like a full stack kind of media company. I mean, it was 
digital analytics, tech, uh, which are all different teams. And then, you know, political folks, lawyers, accountants, I mean, kind of the whole nine in terms of the types of roles that was about 800 people in Brooklyn. We did those roles in about six months and then hired 3,500 or so field organizers um, across the country. So it was a, it was just a trial by fire. I mean, it was the first time there was a talent role on a presidential. So the, the, the remit was basically like, we need you to build the playbook while the plane's flying, you know, in real time and, and help us, you know, basically it was like, we want to eliminate as many headaches as possible. The, 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 the story was that the Obama campaigns apparently had just had like a real headache when it came to the recruiting operations. And so they, they actually had put in the sort of advice document, essentially, you know, that to, to, to gets handed to the next campaigns. They put like, we should have a talent person on operations. So, so I can get into that more, but um, obviously was disappointed with the outcome had been planning to go to DC to do transition team work on appointments and, obviously that that did not happen so so after that i was in-house um at a startup studio a philanthropic startup studio called the future company in new york which is itself a interesting story I was there for about two years and left in january unfortunately the organization had its funding pulled also a story we can happy to get into so it was sorry to see that not work out but um at that point got a, a silver lining of you know feeling ready and just feeling excited to, to go out on my own again. So since then I've been uh, running formidable, which is, as you said, consultancy focused on helping teams upgrade, you know, how they do people, how they think about it. My clients are basically executives, founders, CEOs, um, who, you know, for whatever reason, there's all these different buckets. I'm sure we'll get into it. Um, feel like their team just isn't quite where it needs to be on either the recruiting side or the team effectiveness. And so I come in and help them clean that up. And one major thing that I didn't mention in the in the lineup here is while I was at the future company in New York, my now wife, we got married uh, about eight weeks ago, she ran for state Senate in New York. And so I was the chair of her Senate campaign. So for, for about a year, for, from January through the general election was in November, the primary was in September. I helped her, you know, we built a team of 24 people. Um, and, and she won so that, I think that was a case of applying some of the principles of what we learned, what we, what we saw going on at the Hillary campaign and kind of distilling for ourselves, you know, what, you know, whatever could have gone better or, or the ways of doing things that may have been smarter. Um, and we're happy to see that actually, actually pan out. She was an insurgent candidate who was not backed by the establishment. Uh, but you know, we managed to win by nine points, uh, despite being outspent 10 to one uh, from this guy, this incumbent who'd been there for, he's been in public office for like 24 years. So he was, he was kind of an establishment villain and she was able to take him out. So the politics of that aside, I think it was a great case study in like, how do you accomplish something that is very, very difficult. And it, and it really comes down to like how the team is put together. And I, I use the word formidability. I, obviously I named the company after that. It, it it's a, it's a word that resonates with me because I think it's, um, it's a great way to describe like what you're going for anytime you're in a situation, either alone or with a team and you're trying to do something that's, that's difficult. That's the landscape. And I'm happy to, you know, start wherever you think is most interesting to dig into it. Sounds good. It's funny. What I find is that I keep, you know, a, a pack of kind of notepads here next to me while I do these. And I just kind of jot down what are the things that I want to, you know, double click on and dive deeper into. And what I find is the best episodes 
I end with like a more full notepad at the end of questions I didn't ask than, than the ones <laughs> I had at the start. And uh, I've already added like double here. So this is, this promises to be one of those episodes. So I've got a bunch of things I want to dig into, but I'm, one thing is just kind of digging at me and, and making me feel curious uh, before we start, which is you have a very kind of uh, varied mm. geographic background. Pittsburgh, Vermont, Sweden, New York. And I, I would assume that right now you are, and for folks that'll, we'll hear trains in the background because yeah. that is New York. <laughs> I would assume that, uh, that you are now a New Yorker. Is that a, is that a fair assumption? Have you like made yes. that conversion into 100%. being a New Yorker? Yeah. And I think both, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's an authentic conversion. Uh, but also, especially now, um, now with my wife's line of work, as we look forward, I think actually really excited to have a, f- a feeling of ownership of a sense of place. And it, it, it was a journey because so I moved to New York in 2014 and we can kind of zoom in on that. So when the, the, the recruiting company rework was based in Colorado, we had this sort of interesting moment where I kind of had this, it was hard to describe. I just, I just felt like we need to be in New York and revenues or I guess just sort of business performance. It was okay. But, but one of my co-founders, I kind of was kind of saying like, you know, we really should be earning more money and in a, in a slightly better position. I don't know, you know, slightly better runway to go to New York. And he wasn't wrong about that. So we had this three month period where we, we brought our other co-founder who was in Pittsburgh at the time, just he, he had always uh, stayed there. So we were kind of a, by the way, a remote first company at a time when, I don't know, it was less in the, in the, in the zeitgeist, but we had been operating that way. We, we moved him to Denver for three months and we rented a house and just kind of had this like hack era where we were just really trying to advance things. And so at the end of that felt like, okay, we, you know, we're in a good enough place. So moved to New York in 2014 and I was living in Manhattan, managed to find this like truly like ridiculously affordable apartment in Greenwich village, which I will eternally be grateful for. So managed to land there and, and really enjoyed uh, living in the city. But then, you know, so fast forward a couple of years. Um, so I was commuting to Brooklyn for the which is not much of a commute, but for the Hillary campaign. And then, yeah, so when my, when my now wife decided um, that she was going to run, um, we, you know, a few months ahead of the, the uh, time period, we, we had moved back to Pelham, which is in Westchester. It's just above the Bronx. And, and the district she represents is uh, a small part of Westchester County and then a, a lot of the Bronx. So, so, yeah, since then I've been, it's kind of funny. I do the commute with all the Wall Street folks in the morning and it's like, I'm the sort of interesting, I'm not like them, but, uh, but I'm on the train with them every day. So it's, it's, it's been fun and yeah, definitely, definitely, uh, love living in New York. I'm a New Yorker and I, I like the variety. I mean, it's just like the variety of things going on in the city. And, you know, I like that the culture is not singularly focused on, I don't know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurship in in tech. And there's a lot of things going on, but there's enough of that, that, you know, for someone like me, I can kind of have that network and yeah, it's been great. Awesome. I'm curious to dig into kind of the constituent base there and what that looks like and how that's different. But let's leave that for for a little bit later in the episode. Sure. So this podcast, I mean, kind of private by default. So we get to explore all the things that are hard to talk about, right? So you know, we've talked about money. Yeah, sex has been referenced. But we've not had a full episode on it. Uh, you know, religion certainly has played in. How do you how to do parenting and child raising? So, like the obvious next step is politics. So maybe maybe we'll start there. Okay. And I'm more curious in kind of the the game of politics than the actual like political positions, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's something very interesting, which is 
I've met a lot of people whose identity is startups and tech. And I've met a lot of people whose identity is politics. And I've met a handful of people whose identity is kind of the intersection between tech and politics, right? They're, right. they're kind of carving out their niche for them, that niche for themselves. But what I find interesting is you've held, you know, pretty high level or important positions on both sides of that divide. But it does not feel like your identity is kind of the intersection of politics. It feels like your identity is more, at least yeah, from a career perspective, is more around people operations or maybe even just kind of uh, being freestyle jazz musician style kind of, uh, uh, you yeah. know, uh, curious about things, right? So I'm curious how right. I, maybe we can maybe we can start with kind of how would you kind of quickly or uh, in a you know, elevator ride describe who you are, what you do, what your identity is. It's a great question, and I'm still you know I wrestle with this, and we can talk about why. I think that the the words that are most that are strongest identifiers to my identity are words I would say entrepreneur, strategist operator. So I think part of why I like the people work is that I just sort of genuinely, I don't know, I just care about it. Like, like being, you know, good management. And it sounds so boring to say that word, but like, there's just something that happens when it, when again, when a team is, is run in a way that it just works. And, you know, it's, I think it's amazingly in some ways, I think it is, is pretty rare. It's still pretty rare, right? Even though there's become, you know more content out there and maybe than there used to be. But so I think in that sense, like if, if I'm, you know, talking about like roles at a company or something, you know, I think my archetype can, can fit like a GM kind of, you know, I don't want to say COO that that's always context specific, but kind of just a, like a, a person who's happy to be accountable for the goals of a team and, and to oversee that team. And then that strategy piece is where, you know, I might get a, I have a little bit more of a entrepreneurial, flair as in to say, I cannot help but see strategic, I guess, implications of a situation in the same way that I can't help but see in the lens of how a team's operating. So, you know, when I'm, when I'm, I don't know if I'm meeting a team or meeting someone who's running a team, like I'm just, I'm immediately sensitive to picking up on cues about how is their team communicating? Do people seem like they're engaged? Like, do they seem like they're being effective? You know, do they, how high quality of the people do they seem like they have? So that stuff's just, that's just how I see things. But again, on that, going back to the, the entrepreneur aspect, the strategy, I am also, when I read about companies, you know, from afar, you know, I just, I'm like super tuned to like, hmm, I wonder like what their plan here is and, and how they're doing it. And I guess, you know, to get maybe into the people ops, like what makes a good people operations approach? I, I would argue it's how are you effectively translating your strategy into what your team actually looks like? And that's that's a recruiting comment. That's a management comment. That's a vision comment. That, you know, there's a lot of things in there. So anyway, I think from an from a, um, identity standpoint, you, you actually did kind of hit something though, which is interesting, which is there is a bit of a sort of just explorer, like, I don't know, adventurer, part of my DNA, piece of my DNA. Um, and so that's to say that I don't feel super, I personally feel quite comfortable without projecting into my future, like who I am and what I'm doing. Um, the rest of the world seems to have some issues with that. Like it's people always like it when you can put yourself in a box, but certainly like a hundred percent over the last decade, you are very correct that like, it's been a bit of a walk that you know, it was not super, it was not planned, right? Like I, I was not, I was not planning to, you know, get that phone call about the Hillary campaign necessarily. So 
Do you have, let me interrupt there. Do you have a hero? Do you have anybody that you think like, I want that life? That's a, that's a very good question. I am most appealed to, I don't have like one name, although as we're talking, some might come up. I, I think that the, the genre of my heroes would be like very, I'd say like people who run private companies that have some kind of a, a mission to them that was, you know, interesting beyond, or, you know, impactful and meaningful beyond making widgets who, who did it on their terms. So I'm thinking maybe of like the, you know, the Patagonia kind of story or, um, I, in fact, I wish there were more known examples, but basically, yeah, like, like, you know, executives and entrepreneurs and founders who, who did not necessarily do the, the playbook of like work yourself into the ground, you know, on wall street's terms or on Silicon Valley's terms, but who have been effective in business and have enjoyed the puzzle that is business, but also have had a life of, you know, whether it's family or I'm really into the outdoors, um, ever since college. So really into camping, trekking, you know, every year I try to do, and with, I think one exception I've managed to do, you know, like one to two week kind of backcountry, like off the radar treks, um, with a group of friends. So, I guess there's something there. It's almost like if you can, you know, lifestyle and my personal life is, is the, is the core, but I'm ambitious and I, and I enjoy business and, you know, I'm getting as a, as a lifelong learner and student, you know, I, I think I'm getting better and getting good at it. So I guess it's sort of this question of who out there has done it on their terms, but who has, you know, has accomplished something, this, this sense of wanting to make something of yourself in the world I, that definitely resonates with me. And the public service, you, you talk about, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, please. Well, and I think the public service element is, is, is part of it and it's not specified, right? Like I get a lot of impact and meaning from my, what my wife does because I, you know, I help her a lot and I helped her get there and I continue to help. And, and it's, it is more of a team. I think one thing I'll say as we get into the conversation about politics, anybody who's interested in public service, it really helps to have a partner who's also down for it, who's interested, who gets it. Because, you know, a lot of the folks that we see in other positions and that she observes, maybe, you know, they either they either don't have a, a partner or spouse or they just, you know, they, they have one who's sort of nominally supportive, but isn't, they're not like in the game with them. And I think that, that that's a different dynamic. It's kind of like having a co-founder, right? Like it's, it's somebody who you can actually talk through the strategy and the tactics and you can actually talk through like the policy, like what do you want to do? So I would just add going back to your, you know, your hero question, like, I think some epitome would be like, you know, somebody who did really successfully in, I don't know, some kind of environmental or social business. And then, you know, I don't know, was like secretary of the interior or, you know, secretary of commerce, something like that, or like who, who also found a way to, to say, give back to their country. I, I will add the, the way that I think about the public service thing is that I actually really have over the last decade come to appreciate, I think our country is really special. And I think that there's a lot of things, you know, look, by, by no means, I think, I think there's a laundry list of problems with the United States and different you know, areas within it. However, I do very strongly believe that, that there's a lot of what's in our DNA that is important and unique. And so this, this idea, this project of like, you know, continually working to improve sort of like the, you know, a more perfect union thing like that. I have that for real. Like, I really think that. Um, and so I think that's kind of where more so than just like, I don't know, some sense of like ambition for its own sake or something like now the public service, like, I think you really do need to have in order to do it. Well, you really have to believe that like it is a way to improve people's lives. And 
whatever, we can say more about that. But I just, in terms of your question of identity, like um, American is also an identity that I, I take seriously. Tell me more about that. What is, what is American in, you know, three or five words to ask the like boring interviewer question? To me, it's, it includes, well, so I think in, you know, in general, I would say it includes an enterprising entrepreneurial, it's like risk-taking, um, you know, I'm somebody who I get, I get kind of inherently jazzed, right. At the concept of risk-taking, right. And it's like, it's a little bit of like, well, what are we doing here if we're not pushing the envelope on something? And, you know, I think it's important from an ethical and, you know, obviously there's been a thread of impact. Um, one thing I didn't say earlier was rework as a recruiting company was all of our clients were mission driven companies. So it was like foundations, nonprofits, uh, you know, organic food companies, like all of our clients had some kind of a mission and that was the whole point of the company. So the idea of taking risks for something you believe in and for making, trying to make the world a better place, you know, in general, and and for some people in particular, I I think that there's something deeply American about that. And as I've learned more, I'm, I'm no expert, I'm no scholar, but you know, as I've learned more and read more about the founding of the country of country and just sort of the chapters of civic life in this country. I just think there's sort of an unmistakable thread and it's not the only thread. And again, there's, there's other stuff that's problematic and countervailing forces and, and, and so on. But I, I think there's something there about this quest to improve both as individuals and look, part of it's individuality. And, you know, I'm for that too. Like, I think it's, it's a freedom thing. It's like, you know, there's something about, wanting to be able to be the person that you are, or sorry, wanting to live in a society where people can be the people they are, I think is part of being American, but also there's this, this greater project of a society and, and you know, sort of a, a rate of iteration on our society that I think, you know, as, as far as I'm aware is, you know, either uniquely American or, or like largely uniquely American. So I think these days, like literally since 2016, there's also this element of like, we're in a really tough situation right now. Like taking aside the partisan, I'm actually like not a partisan person in a lot of ways. Like I don't, I don't have a, I don't perceive for myself a a tribal relationship to like Democrats, for example, you know, like identify as one because that's the party them in and, and so on. But like when I talk about us being in a dangerous situation, I'm, I'm saying like structurally, when you look at some of the the challenges or just like sort of the the way things are heading, I'm talking about things like climate, just like, you know, some economic stuff about like wages and just the role of technology. I mean, there's some real challenges we have to solve. And yeah, I think it's just, I think I I would, I think it's easy to make the case that the, the federal government and, you know, a lot of States, look, it's not just Trump. I mean, I I have a lot of critiques of the Obama administration as well. There's something about how we have been governed, you know, in the last I don't know exactly how far back I would go. There's something about how things have been governed that I don't think is is well equipped or I don't think we're like well positioned as we as we could be or should be, you know, for going forward. So I think there's this work of like what how do we rethink how policy works, how politics works for this modern era that we find ourselves in which frankly is going to be a chaotic era. I think of it as I think of it as stormy and I think part of that is an allusion to climate change, but like that's not the only storm that we're going to be facing. Um got you got generational stuff. I mean, demographics issues, right. With, with aging population, you've got the demographic economics of millennials. I'm thinking of things like, you know, a lot of millennials can't afford to buy houses and there's things there. You got entrepreneurship rates that are dropping. So I just, there's this whole, there's this whole picture that I think if you're, if you're tuned in and you're somebody who, especially I think if you're somebody who values 
some of the insights that I guess for lack of a better term, like business and capitalism can offer us and some beliefs about that. I think it's, I think that we have, you know, we're, we're in a tough spot. So I guess that would just say that part of that American identity right now is this question of like, if you're paying attention and you're alarmed, what are you doing about it? I think that's, I think that's a question. It makes sense. Do you have strong feelings about Ross Perot or familiar about kind of his, his, his role in things? Like it's when you're talking about kind of the things that you value, for some reason, I keep kind of triggering back to this. I mean, obviously somewhat on the opposite side of the aisle, although probably like the most, you know, he was definitely independent. He was probably the most liberal conservative. uh, uh, If we want to kind of put him in a bucket and certainly iconoclastic, certainly an operator, public life, private life, yeah, fairly successful in both. I mean, 9% of the vote's not successful, but in this yeah. world it is if you're an independent. Yeah. I, my, <laughs> what do you think about Ross Perot? My honest answer, and I, I wish I had a better one, I just don't know enough about I mean, I, I know the name and I know the role that he played in the election. I, I don't know. I just don't know enough about his life or I, I'm not even uh, familiar with how he, like his his private sector success, I think I, I'm aware that it existed, but I don't know enough about it. So I unfortunately would have to just sort of take a neutral <laughs> neutral answer on that. But but it makes I mean what you just said makes sense about why that might be why he might be coming to mind. Got it, got it. Well, I want to zoom in on something else then uh, that's a little bit more kind of in the weeds, perhaps. But I think will will give us a glance at something interesting. I am fascinated by the idea of like the advice doc from the Obama campaign to whoever's next, right? Yeah. And I, you know, it sounds interesting that the Obama campaign struggled on talent, um, just given that they're fairly well regarded for this idea of like bringing tech into, you know, into national politics and, you know, making a bunch of advances there and hiring a bunch of Silicon Valley people that historically have been really hard to do. Tell me a little bit more about the, actually, before we get into the struggles, Tell me what that document was like. Like, what is, you know, what is the the kind of advice to the next person running look like? Well, I can, so this is, I can answer it sort of structurally. I mean, it's, and it's maybe less tantalizing than you might imagine, but I mean, it's basically, you know, it's called like a legacy document and I don't know how long it's been going on, but, you know, it's basically like the team's regardless of the outcome, you know, the teams from a campaign take some time after to just, it's basically saying like, this is how we were organized as things like, you know, this is how the teams were structured. This is how we thought about this and, you know, in varying levels of detail. And then, you know, it's sort of like a bit of a, of a, of a, um, a debrief, right. Um, or saying like a retro, right. Like this is, this is what we would recommend for going forward. So, you know, I, I, it's not like, it's a pretty, close hold document. So I didn't, I don't think I ever saw the one from the Obama years. Um, but I just happened to know it because the person who kind of referred me and it's, it's a good story. So we can tell the story of how I, how I did come to, to get the Hillary job. Like she had referenced the fact that she was the COO for, for Obama 2012. And so she had specifically referenced like my main recommendation on the operations team, which is only one of 11 departments. So it's not like it was like the one thing of the whole campaign, but this, this is the person that you, you got introduced to Hillary through. Yeah. So, yeah, so I can tell the story. So, um, <laughs> and unfortunately, um, this woman has, has recently, I think this year or maybe last year, unfortunately passed away. So it's, it's sad in that regard. But so in, I think it was like 20, 13 or maybe 2014, 
I was hanging out with my, uh, my best friend, Steve from Pittsburgh, um, who he had actually worked for the, he and I went to kindergarten together. And so we've been best friends since he was the best man at my wedding. He was working for the mayor in Pittsburgh when we were, we were roommates when I had moved back to Pittsburgh after college. So he had always been interested in politics. And I was actually, I was hanging out, I think it was like holiday break. I was back, back at my mom's house and Steve came over and, and I was trying to explain to him why Twitter is good for your career. And I was like, you know, look, you can tweet at people that you don't even know. And they might, you know, they might even tweet back. And I was thinking like, who would he, cause all the people that I would reference and care about were like, you know, founders or, or startup people, or I don't know at that point, maybe some investors or something. And I'm like, who would he care about that? I wouldn't necessarily care about. So I, I Googled like, who is the COO of the Obama reelect campaign? I don't know why I just, that was what came to me. So her name was Anne-Marie Habershaw. She's, you know, she's, she's a political operative, but she's not like famous, but she, you know, you can find her. So I looked her up on Twitter and I tweeted to her. And at the time I, and I said, you know, Hey, I'm the CEO of this, you know, recruiting company. Would you be interested in having a conversation? We're always looking for mentorship. I'd love to hear how you guys did your hiring. You know, cause I'm thinking like whoever did the hiring for Obama's must be like a, you know, they must know what they're doing, right? There's, there's all this pressure. There's not a lot of time. There's a ton to do. And you know, the stakes are high. And so, and she tweeted back in like, in like one minute, it was like literally like one, one minute or two minutes and was like, yeah, let's talk tomorrow. And Steve and I were like, whoa, and we were literally sitting on the couch. We're like, whoa, that was like even more than, more than I had expected in terms of this demonstration. So I got on the phone with her and yeah, I said the same things. And she said, she was like, no, she's like, I actually, you know, she's like, I'm so glad you reached out. Um, we really, it was a mess. And, you know, so it wasn't, look, I, Obama hired a lot of very smart people and they did a lot of, a lot of cool things. But I think her point was, it's not that there weren't great people there. It was that the process around, you know, she was saying things like we had our senior leads like sourcing because nobody had thought through like, how should we be, you know, it's like the process of recruiting operations. So it was just very jumbled and very chaotic, which is, you know, not unlike many, many startups who haven't thought this stuff through or put things in place. So I think her point was, we just, we, she's like, we need someone to, and at the time she was saying like, my recommendation for the next set is going to be, we need someone who, um, is going to take point on that and to run a team to support the teams. I mean, run a talent team to support the other departments. So she kind of said like, you know, so what do you think of that? And I was like, Oh, well, in that case, I said, whoever you get, or who I said, whoever that person winds up being like, tell them to call me because, you know, and I kind of flipped it, right. I don't know. I'm doing the like startup CEO thing. So I'm like, I kind of flipped it. And I'm like, you know, we, we've done a lot of research. Like we do, you know, we run a great process. We have all these good stats and, and so she, you know, I don't know, I said, I don't know what else I said at the exact time, but I basically was like, make sure that, you know, someone gets a hold of me because I can, I can help and didn't hear from her for, you know, three years or whatever. And and then I, I got this <laughs> very cryptic email. It's funny. We're, we're friends now, but um, David Levine, who was the, he wound up being the deputy CEO for Hillary. I got this very cryptic email from him when we, after we moved to New York, the company and the email said, Hey, I'm running a, this is in. I think it was like January of 2015. So it was like very early on, you know, obviously before uh, Hillary had announced. And he said, <laughs> I'm running a billion dollar startup in Brooklyn and I need to hire a talent person. Are you interested in having a conversation? And I'm like, I'm like, I know all the startups in Brooklyn and there's no, I'm like, this guy is like, you know, it's just very clear. Something fishy is going on because like th- this person is not the CEO of, or, or whatever of, of a billion dollar you know, start in Brooklyn. So I was like, I was like, all right, like, you know, let's hear this guy out. And then, you know, 
pretty quick. He was asking all these questions about like our process and it was kind of a sales call for rework. And I was like, it's like, you know, can you tell me a little more like who you are and like what you're talking about? And then he was like, well, actually, you know, this is a conversation about if secretary Clinton decides to get in the race, you know, we, we need this person. It's like, whoa, like it felt, hold the phone. Totally, totally like out of left field comment. I'm like, I gotta like, I'm like, wait, I, I can talk to you, but I gotta like leave the office. Like this is just like went to a whole nother level. So I, you know, went out and went for a walk and was like, is this real? You know, is this is really what this conversation is? So, um, yeah. And I went in, you know, met with the director of operations, uh, in, uh, HRC. So, folks call Hillary HRC, um, who are in her orbit. So I went into her office in Manhattan at the time where folks were, there's sort of a, a campaign in waiting as they called it. It was like people were volunteering, you know, kind of ahead of time, people who had been pre-tapped and, you know, had like, I was like, I think it was like one long conversation about how I thought about talent, you know, what was I up for kind of the, kind of the whole, the whole thing. And, and they said, okay, you, you know, we want you to do this. You've got 10 days. You have to tell us in 10 days. And so here I am with, a team of 10 people and two co-founders and it was like wow so it was hard i mean it was tough one of my co-founders was it's funny the way i put it is he was kind of a politics person so as soon as i said it he was like wow he's like but you have to do it you know that was like the response and you know the other one i would say is not a politics person or at least wasn't at the time it's like it was it was hard it was like this i think the the, the emotion that came across was you don't want to be my co-founder anymore. And that was difficult because, you know, it's like, that wasn't it. That's not the driver of why I would make a decision like this. But, you know, we, we had to work through some stuff for a while. I mean, I think obviously uh, something like that, it's going to, you know, that's going to change our relationship forever in a way, but also, you know, the hard part of it, you know, it, it took some time to, to get past. So that was an interesting, um, interesting move. And I think he was disappointed, but yeah, so that, that was kind of the, that was the chapter of, of moving from rework over to to Hillary for America. Do you think that David email comes if you're not in New York already? It's unclear to me what like whether he knew or whether that would be related to. And so, I mean, on the phone call, he was he said like Anne Marie gave me your name, right? So he had gotten he gotten the direct contact. You know, I think he probably would have emailed me no matter what. But I, I would say that I, I don't see it would have been much harder for me to say yes to them if we were not in New York because the campaign was in Brooklyn and it was literally like, if you want to do this, you know, we need you to just start showing up volunteering in whatever, in, in two or three weeks and you have to tell us in 10 days. So I think it would have been just a much harder like life switch. The fact that the fact that the logistics of it was actually not an issue. Like I was like living in Grants Village and could take the R train to Court Street. Um, I think that part actually, I, I think my ability to say yes um, had a lot to do with being in New York. I, it's unclear. I, I'm actually unsure what would have happened if I had not been there. Did you know your wife at that time? Yes, although we weren't dating. So we met at New Leaders Council. And, you know, this is actually interesting because there's a few things in my life that I think it's like one of um, Naval's tweets of like, do asymmetric upside things. So New Leaders Council was a, a political fellowship for people who are interested in either running for office or, you know, learning about campaigns was it's a progressive um, organization. And so I did that in, I applied that, that, that program was starting in January of 2015. So I get to the, it was like, you know, like every other weekend for five months kind of thing, something like that, or one weekend a month, I forget exactly. And so I met, so Alessandra was in the, in the fellowship 
Um, and so I knew her, but I didn't know her well. And when I got the Hillary job, there's kind of a funny story that she tells on, on her side of the, her side of the narrative where I actually, I recruited her cause she, she, she worked for Hillary as well, but I recruited her from, she was working for the governor's um, office of, of storm recovery. And it was funny cause I, she made some comment like, Oh, I want to work in the white house one day. And I kind of was saying like, well, what's your plan? And, and she kind of looked at me and, you know, I'm not any, I was nobody in the political New York scene, right? Like she, and she, and her family, her, her, her grandfather um, was a congressman. So, you know, her family has been not like as involved in, in more recent years, but just because of what he had done, she's familiar with the New York political landscape. Let's put it that way. And so she was kind of like, you know, who is this person who just came up on the radar, who's in this fellowship, who's asking me if I want to work on a presidential campaign, like in this cryptic way. This was like before it was public. So I was kind of being, you know, I was, I was pre-recruiting for some strong folks who I knew personally. Another example of that was the, the woman who wound up being the director of product overseeing like all of the mobile and uh, web kind of properties did this sort of pre-recruiting thing. And, and it was funny, Alessandra said she, she ran home to her parents and was like, Who's this Kolak? Like, do we know, you know, who, what is this family? And they're like, we don't know who you're talking about. And we don't know, we don't know what this is. So it was a funny, just weird situation of how I was in that position. But so, yeah, I recruited her. And I think, you know, we started dating like kind of later that summer once she had landed at the campaign. And yeah, it, we, <laughs> another story that we tell sometimes, we, we kept it quiet because the political campaign, the, the internal politics of it, the culture, it's a weird scene. It's, it's a mix. I mean, everyone's super ambitious. There's, it, I would say it's about fifty, about seventy five percent, like very high output, high achieving people. I mean, a, particularly a presidential, and particularly Hillary's, because it was it's sort of like the Olympics of you know operatives. It only happens every every couple of years, and in her case, Hillary had the Clintons have this like you know whole like decades long orbit of people who have helped them, and who you know, I don't know a lot of them are very talented. So there's just like this stack there's a lot of people who are very good at what they do who show up and you know it's it's a very it's a sharp elbows environment and i think you know some of that can be difficult but so anyway it's a, it's an environment where if you're if you care about a personal detail or sort of a personal life detail you don't necessarily want everyone knowing it because i don't know maybe some people try to like use that to i don't know mess you up or whatever so we we there's a it's sort of a drama layer to things if you if you let it get out of hand. So we we didn't tell anybody, and then we had a, a strategy which worked perfectly. In like one day, you know, after like we kind of were like, okay, this is this is serious enough that you know we're gonna we're we're, we're doing this. We told everybody who we knew or we friends with both of us in like in like a two hour period. So we just killed. There's no chance. There was no time period where it could be like a gossip thing where someone might know and somebody else doesn't. So it's like a, a thing to talk about. We just like took all the all the, uh, can you believe this out of the story? So that, um, it just was like, Oh, okay. Like they're dating. Great. And then it just, you know, that's kind of a funny thing that we felt like was important to do. So, yeah. Well, if, uh, I have a suspicion that, that, that strategy will like one person listening to us will be like, Oh, thank God. Now I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've definitely had this conversations with friends of like, Hey, so I'm in a weird position. How do I do this? So let's, let's get into kind of this, like building the, the, the kind of talent team. So you described it as kind of a team to support the teams. Yes. What does that mean? Like, what is the, what's the North star orienting principle for how you build this high effective team? Yes. So let's first talk about the landscape. So there are 11 departments, um, some of which I mentioned before, but it's basically like these divisions of the company. Each one, you know, at the beginning, each one had 
the leader and like one or two deputies, and then sort of a hodgepodge of some folks who have been pre-recruited, but not many. I think, I don't know. I don't know the exact number, but it was of that 800. Let's, let's call it, I mean, be, to be generous, let's call it like 100 or maybe 120 or something had been like sort of pre-selected. And then we were kind of building from there. So I um, got, I had to make the case, but I got one person under me, a staff person, and then a second, and then a third. And by the end, I had four. And we also deputized in total about 12 interns and taught them. I mean, so the, the, the North Star answer is we were a service provider. So it was basically like, we are here to partner with your department to do everything from hiring process design, you know, designing trial projects. I was trying to get everyone to be as rigorous as possible, as in to say, I was trying to have as, you know, as private sector as possible-ish a, a recruiting process while, while also being aware that like, you know, we don't have all the time that a company would have to like really get things right. Like people are moving quickly for good reason. And I, under, I understood that. So it's this, it's this balance of like, how do we have enough process and rigor to like not make mistakes? Cause that's actually even worse. Uh, then still move forward. So we're talking, you know, trial project design, interview sequencing, sourcing, like just, you know, helping different teams at different needs. The analytics team had a real, like just, they just need more firepower to get more good people aware and in the door. I mean, at the time it's weird because for, if you're a politics person, it's a weird dynamic. People knew like it had been announced that Hillary was running, for example, but like it didn't from a, from a, talent incoming standpoint, it, it wasn't, there was kind of one wave, I think for people who really tuned in and who were, I don't know, had the sensibility to, to like, to try to work on the campaign. But most of those people were not strong engineers or data scientists or, you know, the more technical people we were hiring, like anybody who wasn't already from the industry and already essentially pre-selected, like was kind of, we, we had tapped that out. Right. So there was a whole period where it's like, we were just trying to get the word out and like, you know, go in the job boards and go in the newsletters and the networks and the communities and just like, just let people know, like, hey, we actually, I mean, some people don't even know that the campaign pays staff. I mean, you know, the people just don't, you know, and you don't ever know what people know about the details of a situation. So a lot of it was educating the market, like, hey, if you, you actually could be a data scientist on, you know, working, working to help elect Hillary starting now. And, you know, the election's not for 18 months, but we're working now. And in fact, if anything, there was a surge of, talented people knocking my door down, you know, in like July of 2016. And I had to tell so many conversations where I'm like, look, you look awesome. But like, I could have, I could have placed you as a team lead, like literally a year ago. Like that's like our organization has the cake is baked. Like that conversation. I had a lot of those conversations in 2016 In 2015. It was like, Hey, you can work here. You should work here. Here's why. And having, you know, sort of this conversation about career risk, a lot of like, Hey, look, this is going to be an adventure. You're going to learn so much. Even if we lose, like, you know, well, actually, even if we win, you know, you're not guaranteed a job after, but like, you're going to have such a good story to go back to wherever. And I think, you know, largely that's accurate. Like it's, it's a, it's a, such a unique environment that almost anyone who's got their wits about them, I think can make good use of the stories that would happen really whatever team you're on, but, you know, including the sort of the startup uh, analog teams of, you know, digital tech analytics um, and so on you know, can make use of that. So, you know, we we're making the case. And so anyway, to back to your question. So we deputized a bunch of interns um, because some departments said we want help with screenings and there's just no way. I mean, anybody's in people ops and recruiting ops can, can immediately look at this situation. There's no way that a team of two or three can like adequately support what's going to be an 800 person organization 
on a ramp of, you know, only a couple months. So I trained these interns and I was basically like, look, you're going to operate like staff. Like this is a incredibly important and high leverage aspect of our operations. This is not like the other teams where you're going to be entering data, like, you know, doing data entry and like other kind of basic stuff. Like this is core to like how this organization is going to look. So you got to show up to this. And if you don't want to do it, like we'll rotate you to a different, you know, cause I was overseeing the, the intern program uh, was, was in my portfolio as well. And so it was funny. I, I would, I would say one of the positives that I enjoyed was there was this kind of running kind of trope of like people would mistake the talent interns for staff that they just hadn't met yet. They're like, who is like that? Who is that person who's like running, you know, is that, is that person like staff who's running this meeting? Cause I would actually train the interns to be able to, run you know a recruiting meeting the way that you would you know like a kickoff for example right for a new search or something and you know basically i train them to be able to go from role scoping jd writing you know and the research and that to drafting the trial project and getting all of that you know maybe i'd glance at it or um my deputy would glance at it and then have it signed off by hiring manager like we got to the point where all the interns were able to do that because that was just like the only option we had so that was the that was the first six months, and you know, look, there's political considerations, and that goes two ways. And, you know, some of what we needed to do was take phone calls from people who needed to take phone calls because so and so who's important has a friend or someone who that they they needed to you know make sure got an interview with the campaign, and sometimes they were great people, and it's like okay, we're gonna slot you. And other times, a lot of times, it's like you know, it, we part of the service I was providing, my department was my team was providing was was being able to provide the service of giving interviews to folks who were referred, if that makes sense, right? Like it's sort of, a, it's, a, it's a legitimate political use case that, you know, maybe private companies and startups have less going on, but it was a real thing there. It's like someone needs to get on the phone with these people and hear them out and like genuinely see if we can slot them in. And if not, fine, but they need to do the interview. So there was a sort of like a, I don't know, like a VIP interviewing service, I guess you could call it or something. That was, that was part of it. And then, you know, I was a really big believer that like we need fresh people here who haven't done campaigns before. Um, and so I'm actually proud of, I think the stats at the end of it were 20% of the people at HQ were, had never worked on a campaign or in government of any kind. And, and by all accounts from what people were telling me who had you know, done previous campaigns, that's a very high number. One in five who were totally fresh and were just looking at you know things from first principles, that was good. I, I, I wanted it to be higher. My sensibilities were like, it should be as many as possible. But that was kind of what we were able to do just because there's, you know, there's so much of the like people wanting to hire folks that they knew. And, you know, I get it. It, it. It's similar to startups. Like when you need to hire someone good and you know someone that you think is good, there is sort of this like good reason to hire them in that regard. But then, you you know, you, you do get there's a little bit of the like group think thing that happens or there's sort of a cultural aspect. And you can make the argument for diversity inclusion issues there, there's there's countervailing reasons why that's not ideal but it does make sense when you're under pressure and you know so and so is good or are good enough your instinct is to want to hire them so there were a lot of conversations where i would be saying like look just interview two other people right who like you know maybe you don't know but i'm i'm telling you i think they're worthwhile and yeah some percentage of those did hit and they were it was great like they they got kind of rave reviews on those teams and so that aspect i was i was proud of got it that makes perfect sense I'm kind of curious on this. You you mentioned something at the start of that, and a lot of that actually makes sense. And is kind of I've got a rich list of things to dive into, but a lot of what you were talking about was kind of 
rigorous, right? But you were, so here's the process. Here's how we go through. Here's how we're going to train you. Here's what we're going to do. A lot of that has just the rigor of running a good process. Mm -hmm. But then you also talk about some of these things of like your intuition for, hey, we should have more people who are, I think you call them fresh people, right? People are not from the political landscape. And in my experience, those two things are kind of countervailing and important forces in people operations, where you need to be able to have on one hand, a rigorous process. And on the other hand, um, what I'm going to call kind of an insight into good people and a protection for their experience, right? So you can have a super rigorous process like Google that ends up turning off a lot of people who don't want to spend four and a half months jumping through hoops. A hundred percent. And some of the best recruiters I've met are rigorous, but like the real world-class people I've met just have an instant instinct for people, or they've got a great network or something like that. And they kind of bolt rigor onto that. Yeah. Talk me through the kind of balance between like rigor and then insight. So I have a couple of things to say about this. And, and, and first of all, this is, this lies at the core of, I think what's both interesting and and challenging. And it's, it's the, it's exactly the right tension point that I think exists specifically, let's call on the operation or on the recruiting side, people operations. So I think about, I see how far back I want to zoom out here. When you're dealing with hiring, you know, you're dealing with judgment calls and you're dealing with incomplete information. And so I think I see recruiting and everything that goes into it. And ultimately, you know, with hiring as this sort of decision-making game. And so when I think about rigor, what I'm thinking about is it's less about like, you know, having a lot of interviews. In fact, you know, it's, that would actually be because, because rigor, but when I say rigor, I mean, I'm talking about efficacy, talking about effectiveness. So ideally you want as few as possible to get the best possible insights, right? So, you know, in terms of the actual, I don't know, amount of process, I actually aim to have as little as, as possible. And I think it's, it, you know, you can keep it concise, but to, but to your point, the rigor part is you're trying to get like, you're trying to exhaust the new sources of information that can inform your decision-making and your t- intuition. I'm a big believer that intuition in your gut is a decision. It's part of your brain. I mean, or like, it's like, it is, it's legitimate computational processing for decision-making. The problem is if you only have that, or if you haven't taken pains to like, or taken steps, I should say, to make sure that you've fed all the best and as little of the non-useful information to your intuition as possible, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get problems. So I think the way that I think about those is very much that they're two different, they're kind of parallel tracks. And you know, it's tough, right? Because everyone, it's like everyone thinks they're good at poker. Like everyone, a lot of people have hired people and a lot of people have had some success. And not, I think not everybody's necessarily clear about where they've been lucky. I mean, it's like anything, right? Like sometimes the, the, you get a lucky bounce kind of thing. And so I think it's in many cases, especially important discipline or a function within a company to be really honest about like how much of our success here or, and also failure, how much is coming from us doing the best things versus, I don't know, I'd say getting lucky, but you know, just, just having you know, experienced some of the, some of the positive outcomes that could have gone the other way. But also there's another issue, which is, as you said, some of the world-class recruiters and people, people do have great instincts. You know, it, it is a thing that some people, not too many, but some people can kind of have like, you know, have one conversation and just know a thing or whatever. But the, but the issue is, that doesn't scale super well. So if you don't have one of those people on your team, everybody else is 
statistically not very good at making a snap judgment. You know, they make these decisions very quickly in an interview, for example, and then they spend the rest of the interview sort of rationalizing what they already decided. And it's like, so I think part of my, part of the work is, you know, it's almost like if you use another vertical, it's almost like saying like, you know, excellent branding. Like some people just have an eye for it and that's awesome. But what if you don't have one of those people on your team? How do you, how do you help if the mission is, or if the interest is to help the general audience get better, you can't rely on this sense of like, we'll just find a world-class recruiter to join your team. Cause you know, just a lot of teams aren't set up to be able to do that. And also there's just a shortage of those, of those folks. So yes, to me, it's like, how do you try to have mental, how, how do you do enough, you know, coaching or training or just sort of embedding some mental models and perspectives about how to, how to make decisions about hiring into a team and also like have enough of the just straight up operational logistical stuff of, you know, like, are you, are you, are you getting a hold of enough good candidates? And do you, are you clear about what a good candidate even looks like? Cause have you done the scoping the right way? And do you have a scorecard and you know, all those kind of things, like you, you have to kind of have the whole, all of it together until you have a talent engine. And I think if there's one thing that I'm honing in on is like what I, my favorite work is to do is like building a talent engine that can persist. And by that, I, this concept of an engine to me is it's a function of a company, in this case, talent people, that where where the between the process and the people who are in those seats, the thing runs without having you to effort it. Like, and specifically without having an executive or a CEO having to push on it. Like you just get better and better and better people coming in the door with less and less and less headache. And, you know, eventually that turns into, you know, lower, lower and lower costs per hire and so on. Like, how do you get that engine? And I think that the thing that so many companies, and I get it, it's like, if you're scaling fast, you know, building a perfect engine isn't necessarily the way you'd say that you want to do it. But for anyone who's have more of a long-term plan in mind, or who does really value kind of what it feels like to work at the company, or just anyone who is, anyone who has gotten the message internalized to them that talent and people matters because it's your company and like we have a reason to want to get this more right than not let alone you know great like those people should want and if they're clear about it do want talent engines they want they want this function to work and so to get it to work it's just this interlocking web i you know i don't think it's it's i don't think it's necessarily conceptually that different from again marketing or sales or engineering or product like you, you got to just do the work to like grow this thing that works but i think the difference about people ops and i'm generalizing a lot so like you know i'm generalizing but i think what can make it tricky is that there's such a variety of backgrounds and perspectives that and you know the whole legacy of hr which you know to some extent some companies are still dealing with it's like it, it, it's a very uneven, there's a very uneven view, almost like person to person at this point of like, whether they generally are likely to give a recruiter or a people head or whatever, the sort of agency to do what they need to do. And there's some good reasons for that. Some people have worked with recruiting organizations and recruiters who are like very reactive, sloppy, whatever, you know, like there's that, I totally get that aspect, but I think one of the things that can make this work challenging and you know, I, I sort of hear secondhand, I don't, I don't know, I'm not in touch on a day-to-day basis with like too many, let's say like VPs of people and like literally Silicon Valley, you know, I, I know a lot of people, folks across different industries and so on, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't live in Silicon Valley kind of thing. You know, I get secondhand that like a lot of those roles, there's a high burnout and it's a tough role in a way because like, it's just so dependent on the relationship with the, with the executive and the CEO and, and 
my observation, I'll put it this way, is it can, it's either one of two things. You're either in a, it's either a great job where it's like, you know, great job security. You're kind of like, you're rolling with it. you got a great relationship and you, you, you know, you have, you have as much of a leash to do what you need to do. And you're, you've got buying on the executive team and so on, or you're like constantly crunched under the gun. You've got this kind of weird, either resourcing dynamic or sort of just, you know, it's like certain aspects of your job, you're being told essentially what is important, what to do, even when you're kind of like, oh, I don't know. And so I think it can be, it can be a really tough job. It can be, it can be a hard position to be. And I think, I think what may make that unique from marketing or sales, I mean, look, any, any executive job, you know, you're going to have high pressure or something. So I, I'm not talking about that. That's just part of the job, but I'm saying what makes it unique is that I think compared to those other things, there's a lot of room for people who have seen success and been successful to have views about how people stuff should go that I don't think are supported by, I don't know, the literature or sort of, I don't think they're actually the best, you know, it's like, there's a classic, there's a classic sense of like, you know, some people who run kind of a like command and control culture where people don't feel empowered. They believe that is, you know, that's how they do it. Despite what I would argue is that if, you know, depending on a certain amount of care for people that you're actually, you're better off in an environment where people are, you know, higher trust, more accountable, but it takes work to get that right. You know what I mean? You see what I'm saying? It's like, you kind of, yeah. Yeah, I I do. And I I think this is a, uh, there's a, there's a heuristic I like here, which is it's a bike shed problem, which I'm stealing from, you know, from lore, but marketing and people, I think both have this in common where, no one who is not an engineer looks at product engineering and says, I have strong opinions about how this should work, right? They assume it's a harder problem that they don't understand all the intricacies of. Whereas hiring and marketing people, you know, most of the kind of art of that or the science of that is below the line and people just yes. see simplicity. And outcome, how hard can right? it be, right? Pick a logo, pick a font. And you said two things. So that, I mean, that was a, that was a long answer. And I want to, I want to kind of narrow back in on two things you said that I think are really important to highlight. So, you know, people are looking for like takeaways. There is, you mentioned this concept of mental models, which is how do you give somebody something simple that they can then become effective inside of your system? And I think that is, uh, I, you know, I'll I'll call this kind of heuristics, but um, yeah, I have three heuristics, for example, when I'm trying to train somebody who's never done an interview before, how do you do it? What I'll often say is look, go in knowing what you want, like, what are you interviewing for? And what do you think this person should look like, or the ideal person for this role should look like? And then in the first five or 10 minutes of an interview, develop an opinion about whether this person is that, you know, is that ideal picture. And then spend the rest of the interview trying to disprove yourself, right? Like you probably have snap judgment biases. So ask hard questions, challenge your own assumptions, like dig in on the thing that you think you've kind of, I know who this person is, right? Mm. Those are mine. I assume they're not perfect or, you know, ultimately correct. You had to train hundreds of people how to do interviews. What were the kind of heuristics and mental models you gave to somebody who had never done one of these before to make their hour with a candidate effective? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So, so a couple of things. I think, and it depends a little bit on the background of you know, are, are we starting someone from literal zero, or, or is it sort of like retuning someone? And I think, by the way, one of the issues when it comes to interviewing the interviewers is part of what makes effective. And I think this is actually especially true in startups. Part of what makes effective interviewing is the ability to triangulate between what someone's saying and what you know to be true. So, and I, it's sort of like a market knowledge thing, right? Like if someone's talking, someone can give answers that sound 
great. But like, if you haven't either, for example, done, you know, dozens of other interviews on a role like this, or no, have peers who do that role other else play elsewhere, it's hard to like know if what you're hearing, you know, sounds right. But I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, just, I guess in no particular order, the things that I try to hone in from a, from a foundation standpoint, so not even getting into like, I don't know, some specifics for certain kind of roles. It's like, you are trying to form an opinion about whether the person in front of you can do the role. So I think it's a, it's a lot of what you said of like, you know, it, like don't come into it thinking like your job is to ask these questions. You're trying to form this opinion. Now, the tool that you're going to do that with is to ask like X, Y, and Z questions. And by the way, it should be semi-structured. There should be 75% of these that you're definitely going to hit. And you can, you can dive and wiggle like based on the answers after those, but we want to be consistent because, because also as you zoom out from one interview, you're trying to form across, you know, across this whole interview sequence, a view of which candidate would do the job the best or in the way that is you know most beneficial to the organization. And do you interview a lot of candidates at the same time? What do you mean at the same time? Uh, so yeah, are you trying, are you interviewing, you know, one person for a role every week and then selecting when you get it? No, or are you trying to have no, like no. a batch of Much people all batch, at once? Batching and waving. Yeah. The waves, I should say. Yeah. So my, my, my preferred model is when you're doing a search that you, I mean, there's two kinds If you're pipelining, then you, you know, you're doing it as, as you, as you, as you want, just less pressure. But if you're doing a, if you're doing a search, it's like you want to get as loud as possible, as quickly as possible, have as many uh, good qualified candidates, i.e. the people that you want to be reaching, you know, hear about the job alert or the ad from a trusted source. So, you know, everything from job boards that they actually you know go to or friends they know, you know, there's this whole spectrum. And you're trying to have the, as many people come in at once so that you can like screen them down. And then you're dealing with, ideally you're dealing with like, you know, a perfect search would be like within two weeks, you have eight people who are plausible. And then after your trial projects, you have four who are great and you, you know, three that you think could really do the job. And then now you want to be like, you want to be spending the most amount of your time with two or three finalists. And I define a finalist as we could hire this person and they would do this job. Well, the question is which one would do it the best and who's the, you know, the best culture fit and who's going to be like the extent that we can get that like moonshot factor of like, they're going to just really transform stuff. Uh, you know, not all roles. Well, that's it. Let's come back to that in a second. I want to talk about the idea that like this concept of like, you know, we need, the best people everywhere at like that line. I want to talk about that, but, but so to answer your question, no, I mean, ideally you're doing like several interviews for the same role within, within the same few days, the same week, and you're moving people um, in waves based on, the, based on your conclusions. And then, so the other thing, I think another heuristic to remember is it's a two-way street. And so a lot of people who don't do live interviews basically forget that like, it's not fun to just sit and get asked questions, especially when it's like kind of a, like a machine gun of questions that don't get responses to. And so, you know, part of it's like making someone feel comfortable and have a good experience. But um, part of it is you have to, you have to sell, especially maybe if you're, you know, the, the, the majority of companies are not charismatic megafauna of, you know, the economy, right? Like most companies who are hiring are not famous and don't have the talent brand. That's like an automatic, like, you know, Oh my God, like, you know, I'm thinking, you know, places like Stripe where it's like people want to work there because they just know there's like great people there. Like, you know, like, so you do have to sort of convey that as well. So I'm more into having people carry these out, however, is authentic to them. But I think it's important to establish with folks, look, like you're trying to form this opinion while kind of getting the person interested and wanting to, you know, be authentic and, and let them know what it's like to work there and that kind of thing. So, you know, there's, there can be more specific guidelines of like, make sure that they get to ask some questions at the end. And yeah, you know, some of that stuff's basic. You can like look it up on the internet, but 
that doesn't mean that everyone does it well. It's this funny thing, right? Like all these, all these things are out there, but like, it's so rare to see a company actually put them all together and like use all of it in one place, which is interesting. You know, another heuristic is like, get to bedrock, like get to concrete details. So if someone is saying I shipped X, Y, or Z thing, like, you know, especially if you have any sense where you're like to, but like, what did you specifically do and try to try to disentangle what in their experience was the lucky bounce or the after, you know, the, the, the glow of association from somebody else who did a thing and their own decision-making. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that you should only hire people who've knocked stuff out of the park hundred percent of the time. I, I'm a believer that someone's, when you're, when you're interviewing someone, you're, your 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 mind is interacting with theirs. Like your operating system is evaluating their operating system. So you can find all different kinds of evidence while you're mapping somebody's operating system that they can do the job that you need to done. It doesn't have to have been a track record of you know only success or even whatever you know even like majority success. But you got to be you got to be realizing what you're doing and paying attention and, and like locked in. So you know another thing if you kind of take all of that together is people need to really show up for these interviews like focused and engaged and it, they shouldn't be done at five o'clock after a whole work day where you're tired like your interviews especially you know when you're later in the process and you know you're with serious candidates like you should be like the first things you're doing or, or whatever time of the day that you're you're really like this is the work I, I think that's a theme that comes up especially for executives and especially again for for key roles and especially for serious candidates towards the end like this is the most important thing you're probably going to do today. If this conversation goes well and you're correct about it and that you hire them and they're going to transform your team, like that was what deserved the attention. So, you know, there's, I've seen, I don't know, just sort of a cramming mentality or it's so funny, right? People will say like CEOs who I have worked with would say talent's the most important thing. And then they're like cramming the interviews in on like literally like weeknights and weekends and it's just kind of like what, you know, this, something's not adding up here. Like you're not actually doing the thing that you said is important. So, but going over to the, um, going over to this thing of like, everyone always says, I want the best people, you know, we need the best people in every role kind of thing. You know, first of all, I think that the word best people is at the best is just like a really, I want to say simpleton way of thinking about it. I mean, everything is context specific. So yes, you want the best fit people for your context that I think we can all agree that that is, that is the goal. But there's no such thing. I, I, I very much subscribe to the notion that there's no such thing as someone who is like inherently a superstar. I mean, look, there are people, let me be very clear here. There are certain people who do have an X factor and they are just, they are just high output, savvy operators who know what they're doing. They know their industry. You know, they know who to call. Like those people definitely exist and they're, they're great. And you should try to hire them because they're really, they're really awesome. But like, they're only great. I mean, the way in which they're great is because they have, they have, um, they have been so, they have created a niche of a context in which they are great. Let's put it that way. And so, and so in any given case where that niche is the niche you need, yes, they're great. But this idea that, especially when you're like hiring for, you know, all the way down an org stack into junior roles and so on, like, there's just this idea that like, there's these perfect people out there and we're hiring them. It's just, it's just crazy. So you know, I think it's very important and realistic and strategic to, while you can agree, and the goal is to have the best context hires in every position, we also need to have a priorities list. We also need to be very clear, which are the most important roles? Which are the ones that we must get someone who is the X factor transformative? And we need to focus, at least, at least initially, we need to make sure that those searches are going well first, because you can't do everything at once, especially if you're understaffed or 
have some wobbles in your people operations. So like, I think another thing I've seen that I, I try to make the point is like any kind of strategic situation, it's important to be realistic. And if everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. And so I think that element as well is something that is easy to, it's easy for a recruiter to get steamrolled by an executive CEO saying, well, we just need all these done. And it's like, yeah, okay, I know. But like, we need to get to the juice of like, which of these things, which of these things would you prefer to fail in, in light of the other ones succeeding? And I need to know that in order to design the next month. You know what I mean? Like in order, in order to like really be sure to deliver on the remit. And I think that clarity is something that is hard for you know certain organizations to deliver. Yeah, I think you're hinting at um, something that is kind of the the difference or the the stuff that is not obvious about building a good talent function, um, or as you've called it, that kind of talent engine. And it's you know this idea of hey, in order to have a high output operation, we've got to have high performance the same way that any other operation does, right, or any other function or department does. And so you know you've. I would summarize what, you know, you, for example, when you're saying like, Hey, I want to pick what to work on. You know, it sounds like the kind of ideal strategy in your mind is get loud about a role, a few subsets of what all the things you'd want to hire. And then, you know, be quick, right? Use that as the kind of tip of the spear, right? Hey, we're going to get loud about this. We're going to focus on it. We're going to get a bunch of people in. We're going to run a tight, good process. We're going to hire them. We're going to, you know, put them into the funnel of getting up to speed. And then we're going to go back and focus on a new thing. It's kind of, you know, loud, execute, repeat. <laughs> um, yeah, and to do that on a, on a subset of roles rather than like, all right, well, let's boil the ocean. Yeah, 100%. And, and a good, sorry, a great recruiting team, what do you call it, talent or recruiting, you know, the, the, the search owners. So first of all, you know, you got to have a search board, whether it's manually done in, you know, Google sheets or whether it's some kind of tool, you got to have a search board. And it's like, I love the sort of color coded by search owner. What is the health of this search and accountability on a, what's a search owner, a search owner is someone. So, you know, whether they're called a recruiter, I actually prefer like a talent manager because I think it's important to distinguish this is someone who's owning the search and they are partnering with a hiring manager and the hiring manager is the decider and the hiring manager is going to live with the accountability and the consequences of the person that they hired. But the search owner is the one who's making sure that we get to a hire. So the search owner is saying a kickoff, you know, who are we looking for? What's this role? What's the comp pushing back ideally? And this is another issue where I very much subscribe to the idea that the best recruiters and talent managers know the business and the very best ones know the industry and you know business writ large right they can they can have a triangulation and part of what makes great heads of people effective is when they can say the scope that we're talking about doesn't even make sense like why are we even doing this and if they can if they can it's you know it's like an upstream thing if you can catch a weird scope and a weird org design thing before you waste six months on a search on it you just say it and it's obvious you just saved all that time and energy and money and attention and so there's this whole stack from strategy. This goes to the strategy thing. There's this whole stack from strategy down to literally, I don't know, you know, tapping people on LinkedIn. And it's like, you got to play across that. Your, your, your talent team collectively needs to be able to play across that whole stack or else you run the risk of just, of just running around. It's clumping where the soccer ball is continuously just be chased around and being reactive and just to wherever someone's telling you. Basically on the front end that the kickoff happens and after that kickoff that you've got, a scorecard, you've got a search plan, you've got an interview sequence that you've pre-decided. And look, this is to your point, you can riff on it. You can, you can always, we can always call an audible. We can always get fancy, get wild during the thing. But on the front end, we have to have all looked 
at this plan and said, yes, if we execute this plan, we will have the information that we need to know to make a hire or not. And that, you know, the trial project, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, there, there's an interesting kind of component of this. And I find this is actually very effective for especially support functions. And yeah, I, so I'm, I build the, the kind of people operations team at Unsupervised. And a lot of the way that I orient what we do is I think of us as being an API to talent, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, how do we design the kind of experience and endpoints and information transfer between us and a hiring manager? or between that team and the hiring team, right? And we're obviously doing it at a smaller scale. You know, we're not hiring 4,500 people in 18 months, but, uh, uh, or at least not yet. <laughs> but that kind of design of that interplay, I think is really important because I think it's important to have checks and balances. Um, internally, we call this kind of the idea of author and editor. It's hard to edit your own work. Yes. And so, you know, I, I really like this concept of like the balance between search owner and hiring manager. I think that's another one of these kind of below the line, you know, how does a, you know, how does a talent team operate effectively? And you've, you called this kind of building a talent engine. I'm going to summarize what you said is basically that, that drives cumulative improvement. It gets easier to operate over time. You get more good candidates over time. And this, I would assume is an example of this, right? Hey, we're building people that can push back. We're building standards for people to do job descriptions you know, again, back to this, you know, API to talent idea, we are providing you documentation that says, here's the information we expect in order to yes. be able to give you it, you know, a good, you know, access to candidates. Templates, process. Yep. Sounds yep. boring, but it's very, very important. And the checklist, right? So those search owners, they have their own iterating process and checklist where every time they realize, oh, we should do it this way. They go back and they, you know, they refactor and, and kind of edit the core checklist. And so the searches improve over time. It's like a learning algorithm. And if you don't have that, I mean, the search owner, high manager relationship, but really what we're saying is the search owner kind of role and mentality. That is the, that is the core load bearing element that if you don't have it, look, you can always like hustle and hire people. I mean, it's what, you know, it's what people do, but in my view, in my opinion, without that core load bearing element of that team, it's very hard to structurally improve over time, you know, because when you have them, you can now layer on specialists, you can layer under coordinators, you can layer under sourcers, like you can do a lot of different things because those search owners, they're their own, they, they in and of themselves have a strategic view over time. They learn the talent markets, you know, they learn, they learn the organ- their hiring organizations better, they learn their clients internally better and so on. So it just gives you, it's a scalable, I don't know, platform or whatever you want to call it that I think is, is important. How do you actually operationally ensure that is happening across your team? So like down to the point of like, how are you storing docs? How are you teaching people to iterate their process and to be process oriented rather than just hustle to meet the goals? That's interesting. That The question is a little bit of like fish and water to me. I mean, I guess, I mean, it's literally, it's like in many cases, Google docs and Google sheets, you know, I have templates. So we form a template of a search plan. And every time one of my talent managers is going to start a search, they go and, you know, create duplicate copy and title it, you know, search, I don't know, product manager or, or communications. Who's responsible for updating that template. So like if I'm a, if I'm a sourcing, you know, if I'm a search owner, right. And I learn something in my search that's, that teaches me that that template was incomplete. Yeah. Do I update that? Do I bring that information to you? Are you just the driver of process and and you're militant about it? Well, it dep- yeah, I think um, 
the and so I think the que- the answer is whoever is the functional lead. So like in my consulting engagements, in many cases, I'm the functional lead until we're you know filling that that role with maybe somebody internally or something. But the functional lead can can have determined. But I think you know in my ideal scenario, like people would sort of. You know, because a lot of times you'll have multiple these search owners. You'll have like two or three talent managers to service an organization, you know, of a certain size. So I think it's like they would sort of say, "Hey, I, you know, this seems right. I'm going to add this." And then there's either a discussion or so. It's like I think multiple people can have edit privileges, and it's and that's good because you want that agency and accountability for them to be thinking basically like an edit to this. Pro- is is this edit going to help all of us, or is this some kind of I don't know personal reminder that I only want to do on mine or something? But yeah, I, I guess I guess ultimately, I think the the exact answer there matters a little bit less than just that it's happening. Like, there's got to be some way to edit your edit your templates that is, you know, everybody knows that it's a thing that happens, and they aren't surprised when they go back and look, and there's a new step and that kind of thing. But I think ideally, it gets sort of mentioned. I mean, look, you know, you, you, we do weekly search board calls where it's like all we are doing. It's like a sales pipeline. We're talking through every single search, and we're asking the question: What is the what are the things we need to do this week? To either get that search closed or get it from, you know, green to dark green or from yellow to green or God forbid from red to yellow. You know, it's like, what do we need to do if something is not where it needs to be on track to get it to on track? And it's just whatever the answer is, then we do it that week. And so another thing I see is, you know, recruiting can be very much um, a world that moves in weeks, not days, right? Because, you know, people take time to get back and there's scheduling and there's, you know, internal rigmarole. So if you lose a week, like suddenly you lost, suddenly it's like two weeks. And then if it's, a third week and nothing substantive has changed. So it's important that your teams operate with a weekly, I don't like set the calendars, but I am insistent that they set their own calendars of recurring blocks for certain things. You know, that they, they have to form a pattern to be like, how are we effective every single week to move a board forward? You know, like as in like a full set of searches that I own, if I'm a, if I'm a talent manager, I'm a search owner. And then, you know, the, the, the process of, updating templates and stuff. Maybe we talk about that during our weekly people meeting or something, a weekly search meeting, but ultimately what's, it's most important that it's happening. It's, I think it's a little less important exactly like what the, what the protocols are, but yeah. Well, I, I like these kind of, you know, what are the, if you could have three things you remember, you know, what are the things that you just always do? And I think you just hit on an important one, which is like, Absolutely. don't lose a week. Absolutely. Don't ever lose a week. <laughs> I, kind of harken back to like the Charlie Munger approach to personal finance. It's like, okay, it's pretty easy. You don't lose money, right? right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like the rest of the stuff doesn't matter. It'll figure it out. And I think, you know, if we want to get as basic as you can get, everybody who's owning a search and anyone supporting them or anyone overseeing them really should have a weekly meeting and it should be early in the week, like Monday or Tuesday. And you should go through the whole, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like a sales pipeline meeting in the old days where it's like, you're just trying to hustle and you're going to try and make sure that like, you're trying to you're trying to make sure that no week ever goes by where you don't do something that you could have done to like either you know what's the word to make a, a good thing happen faster or to keep a critical path moving for for a thing. So it's just I think there's it's in this day and age even it's just there's no better way than just talking through each one. And you know if you ha- if you have a talent acquisition team that's somehow big enough that that's unwieldy, then you break it into you know you, you break it into divisions or whatever. But I think. And, you know, you want a sense of it's similar to, I don't know, like a sales team, not in the competitive sense, but like you want you want a camaraderie dynamic between your search owners because, you know, this this is can, can be challenging work. It can be dispiriting. It can be there's different things that they can be not the most fun, you know, for recruiters. So it's important that they are a unified front and that they have each other's back. And, you know, 
that can range from like, hey, this team opened up another search and like, I just am at capacity, you know, I need, you know, like, can someone else take it to like, whatever it is this, I don't know what to do in this candidate situation. Like you, you want to brain trust on the, on the people team. And if you don't have that, and especially for earlier stage teams where if there's like a recruiting coordinator, but who like does not have the like background agency strategy that they, they can't, they don't have the kind of wherewithal to like play this full stack perspective role. You, you really need to have one of the executives and it can be, it can be any function. It's just guys be somebody who enjoys hiring and enjoys the recruiting thing, they, they need to be playing a role of moderating and overseeing this, at least to a minimum viable degree, or else you're just, you know, you're just, you're going to be tossed and turned in the winds of like kind of chance of whatever happens with your, with your funnels. One thing that I think is worth talking about is the money ball aspect. I think that I see this sort of, I don't know, debated or banded around of like, you know, basically like this question of like, should you hire people who've done this stuff before? And I think, you know, it's pretty straightforward to me. Like there is a someone who the market someone who has become legible for being excellent at a certain thing it's going to cost more so yes you can pay more if you if you can afford it you can pay more to hire someone that you know has done it are you guaranteed that that's going to work out for you no you can do it if you if you want to do that for everyone you are going to statistically in my mind overpay for what you're doing like as in say there's a there's a business reason to try to get better at discovering talent. Yeah, I wouldn't be trying, I wouldn't be like trying to discover talent on key load bearing roles that are must hires and to get it right. I mean, you probably want to, you know, there's places where you want to play it safe. I like, I like Keith Raboy's thing where it's like, if there's, there's a role that's just absolutely critical to capturing the upside or protecting catastrophic downside, you better hire someone who's expensive, who knows what they're doing. Like, I think we can all agree about that, but I don't know. Someone tweeted the other day, like, after 15 years, I know about hiring and it's just hire someone who's done the exact thing at a bigger company or sorry, in a, in a, in a bigger context. And, you know, like he got some pushback and someone else said, well, the pushback is evidence. This is true. And it's just kind of like, I mean, yeah, you can do that. Is it, but are you, are you leaving some juice on the table? Of, of course. And, and is it that difficult to find high potential people for certain roles who you're going to take a chance on? No, the, and I, I, so I subscribe to the notion that you got to be, you want to be thoughtful about how you're allocating your talent risk, but like a portfolio that's only known winners, it's just, it's going to be more expensive. So to me, I mean, taking aside, like, I think taking aside whether you can afford to do that, and obviously a lot of firms just don't have the budget to like do that. There's something, I think there's a lot, I don't know what to say. There's a lot missed or there's a lot of like nuance that is just missed in a perspective, like just how everyone has done it before. It's just kind of like, I, that's not the whole story. Like there, there's a genuine talent or uh, let's call it a capability. There's a genuine capability, which is the ability to find, evaluate and make the choice to take a chance on people who've not done the exact thing. And there's like tons of examples. I always say the person who benefited the most from, so if, you, if you're, let's say you're hiring for, I don't know, some doesn't matter some role and and you say to yourself i want to hire someone who's definitely done this before and you go out and you find a candidate who's expensive and they've been at some you know blockbuster company or whatever and had done it but you see on their you see on their um resume that before that role they had they had not done it before which is this happens all the time right like someone had taken a chance on them the person who clearly benefited the most well maybe not it's not mutually exclusive one person who benefited a ton from that whole scenario was the person who hired them before they were legible and got the whole upside, whatever you want to call it, got the whole kind of 
you know, salary capture of like, they, they were able to pay them a, a non-legible salary to get what became outstanding results. And yeah, they, they took a chance, but like, I don't know, this is business and startups. Like since, you know, taking a chance is not this like thing that we can't do. Like, it's like a, it's like a pretty clear risk reward thing. So I, that's my view on that. I don't know if that's clear. Yeah, it is. And I think it's actually an important point and I've got a strong opinion, I suppose, on this. And so I want to kind of take it one step farther. I actually love some of the reference, reference points you've made. I think the, the Keith Raboy thing, actually, as far as I know, I think that, that his first expression of that was on, uh, was on the Angelus radio podcast. Um, and the, if I'm, if my memory serves, I believe it was when you want a role that is going to create upside, you must take risk, right? Like, like the, the upside folks are, are the, you're going to get more upside out of people who are kind of variants and you might have to try yes. two or three people in, or, in a role. Yeah, I think you're right. And then yeah, the big right. thing was like where you don't take any risk is like the CFO. <laughs> like if, if someone's there to protect the downside, don't put a loose cannon there. <laughs> and I thought that was a brilliant distinction. It was one of the, uh, Keith is obviously a, a, you know, very polarizing figure, um, but comes up with some pretty brilliant distinctions. And one of these things that I really like about this kind of money ball aspect, I actually really enjoy using this not as a talent methodology at the company strategy level, but actually as a uh, an like an interview strategy to help an individual decision maker understand what they are looking for, either as a hiring manager or in your in your parlance as a search owner. And where I like to see the the what how I like to kind of describe the trade off is this is an area where you know people who are legible are harder to recruit, they are more expensive, and they are more likely to be uninterested in the challenge. If I just took you know, a company that went public from zero to $100 million in revenue as a head of sales, or 10 to 100 or 50 to 100 or whatever it is, I'm probably not going to be excited by the idea of going and doing it again. I'll have knowledge it will be you know i will now be a functional expert right it's like a 30 right. year right. yeah it'll be like somebody who's been a carpenter for 30 years ago yeah i can whip that thing together and i got a skill set and you pay me for it and it's a little bit more kind of mercenary and i don't actually mean that as a negative it is just this is my job and then you're going to get more kind of passion and excitement and learning and discovery out of somebody who's doing this for the first time and i think it's really oftentimes a a you know, a, a part of life thing. And I think it plays into this, you know, well, do you need upside or downside? That's one vector to look at it. I think the other thing is, do you need somebody to invent something new or do you need them to, to like, right. you know, get to best practices right. fast and operate exceptionally well. And even if you take this into founders, right? Like I think, uh, you know, when I think of like David Sachs or something, right? Like if I had a company that was going off the rails and I needed somebody to come in and like just fix stuff, I know like there's one core thing that works, but there's a bunch of stuff here that are, that's wrong. I want David Sachs in that role all day, every day. I know that he could do the invention of something new, but where I think he's most uniquely valuable is just, Hey, come in. There's a job to do, get it done. Right. And if you know, if we're saying, "Hey, we want to go look at the frontier and figure out what it is," there may be other people that I would pick, you know, over him for that role. Although it's hard to say I'd pick over David Sachs for anything, but there, there maybe are other people who are, you know, world class in doing that. And I think that's also kind of part of, you know, talking to a hiring manager and saying, 
what do you need? And then here's a simple heuristic for like evaluating somebody. Is this person passionate enough to overcome their experience? Or do they really need to have the experience to like get this thing into working order fast? Can we afford a miss here? If this, if this role fails and we need to hire it again in six months, how bad is that? Right. All these things are kind of, you know, aspects that a hiring manager can consider. Right. Right. And 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 a few other things to add to that, I think in, in no particular order, the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation is also very important here because n- not to, I won't get too into it, um, but it is, it, well, so, right. Well, no, I think also, that's a great and, you point. Know, it's like, get, feel free to get into it. <laughs> speaking as a straight white man, I'm, I'm not the central voice on this topic per se. However, however, we had way above industry placement rates at rework for people of color, for women, you know, th- we've built the most diverse campaign team in history. Like I do have, it, it has been an area of my work that I, I do care very much about. So I'll just, I'll just say that, but here's the thing, like structurally, definitionally, when you're, when you're, when you have a priority, which I think that companies should for a lot of reasons to have more and better access and inclusion for folks from underrepresented backgrounds in industry and in a company, like definitionally, they're not going to have as many legible people in those coming from those backgrounds. And I'm talking, you know, they're, they're all kinds of cross I'm including like political and academic backgrounds. It's socioeconomic. I'm, I'm not just talking about the stuff that the industry tends to focus on the most, but, but that stuff too. So if you care about that stuff, again, which I think you should, it's a key consideration to understand how that relates to this conversation, to the, sort of the money ball like conversation, right? It's like, and, and that in this case is not about the money, but it's saying like, you just have to be realistic. Like you, you can't, th- these are real markets, like talent markets are actual markets. And so you just cannot expect to easily find certain things when definitionally those things are rare and scarce. Um, and certainly you know, depending on the budgets or whatever. So I just, I think that that's like an important thing that if there's, I don't know, CEOs out there who haven't connected those dots, like fully in their mind, they need to connect that in order to like maybe potentially support, you know, DEI considerations more either wholeheartedly or more, more resources or just more understanding. Like it, it is an actual market challenge. It's not just this sense of like, oh, we need to, you know, we need to do better ourselves. Like you're dealing with a real consideration. So that's one. The second thing I was going to say was, you know, I think to, to weave this back a little bit, actually, before I get to that, one other thing, another thing that I see on a lot of recruiting teams is this short-term orientation, sorry, on recruiting mandates. Like there's a lot of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to build the engine, but like right now we just need to like sprint and hire like these six roles. And it's like, all right, in certain cases, sure. And like, are you going to resource against that? Sure. We can do that. But I do think that like, like any engine, it's important to take a longer term view. It's funny. I'm actually reading Coke land, the, the book about the Coke industries. It started as a, um, I don't know, know your enemies sort of yeah. exercise, but I actually learned a lot. I feel like I've learned a lot of like business there's a lot in there that's interesting about how they built this empire. And, you know, one of the things that just immediately jumps out of it is like a long-term orientation means they could invest and build certain capabilities and functions for at the time were totally innovative in the context they did. And they were able to do that because they were a private company and they weren't responding to wall street. And they specifically did that on purpose and kept it that way. And so I just think like, it's a thing I happen to be reading right now, but it just really reminds me, like, if you're going to make an actual priority, then give your team and whoever you hire to lead it, give them enough of an actual runway to start to build it so that you can see those compounding returns. And, you know, the, the corollary to that is it's on whoever's owning, whoever's the head of people, like it's on them to start showing those compounding returns 
within a few months. But I guess my point is like, what you don't want to do is like judge the whole thing based on four sprint searches in four weeks or whatever. Like that's not, that's not how it works. Like you need to give a couple of months to start to see like the first time you have a better set of fundamentals, as I think of it as like those templates, the search tracker, like that stuff, the first searches that you're going to see actually wind up better are the first ones to get launched with those things in there from the first place, which typically is going to, you know, if I'm working with a company, it's like, it's a few months until there's a whole new wave of those searches. But then every single time they're like, whoa, these are going much better. I'm like, yeah, because the fundamentals are better. You know, like we're just in a much better situation across the board. So that's the long-term orientation I think is, is important. Yeah, you're hitting on something I think critical there. And I actually really like kind of Zuck's heuristic for this, which is I want people to think on a six-month time frame and a 20-year time frame. And I want you to think about yeah. both. And I don't want you to think about anything else. <laughs> and that idea of kind of compounding you know, there's a couple of things that are maybe kind of core things I believe that I think are helpful, but you know, compounding is one, asymmetric upside is another. In this kind of concept of compounding, I think you know, you talk about kind of building the engine, and I, I think it's important to to highlight something that you have said that I think is really critical here, which is right. you don't build the talent engine in a vacuum, right? You're kind of iteratively building on top of you know, each search is getting a little better. You're mm-hmm. kind of you're tweaking the engine while you're flying the plane. And you're, you're kind of driving these compounding returns by what happens when you go meet the market on any given search. And I'm, I'm kind of curious on the, the kind of compounding improvement side. You know, you've talked about some of the things that, that you know, drive into that. But, but maybe what's one thing that we haven't talked about that you would say is an important feature for kind of how the talent engine compounds over time and gets better? So... The first thing that comes to mind is the relationship between the, the, the talent team, the recruiters, and uh, the rest of the employees at a company. And those, reploy- those employees either, you know, either the presence or the lack of strong referrals. And, so, and, and specifically for me, this is one of the great examples where the people system, the people operations system, you know, you, you do generally have, there's like, I think of it as sort of at this point, I'm thinking of it as like mostly like three buckets. You've got the recruiting and talent side, which includes like talent brand, all the recruiting ops, hiring, that kind of the decision-making function for who, who we're getting in here and how. Then you've got like team effectiveness, which I actually put for the moment, I'm putting like culture, employee experience, anything that's not compliance HR uh, in this middle bucket, which is kind of what, how this place works for people when they're here. And then, and then third bucket is like compliance, HR, you know, legal stuff. That stuff's pretty cut and dry. The relationship between the recruiting and the talent brand and how much your engine works and the internal stuff, you know, how much people are enjoying working at the company and how much they believe in it really, really, really start to compound, especially as you grow, if those people are helping the recruiters. And, you know, you can have a referral program or not, like, you know, I, I think referral programs make sense. It's good to incentivize. But the thing I'm getting at here is less about how much money you're going to pay people for a referral program. And it's more about running your organization well and developing people. And one of the things I want to get to is, I forget the way you phrased it, but uh, maybe the mentals models, mental models thing. Like there are a few things that in my mind kind of are the atomic units of how to view people operations, which I want to get to after this. But one of these things is like people's experience really is going to translate to how actively and how proactively they're going to go find other great people and people they know to you know recruit to work at the company. So the better you can loop the feedback loop of how to support your team, whether that's with pulse surveys and or you know walking the block and just talking to people, but the better you can connect 
your recruiting team with reminders and clarity, like getting clear nudges and reminders and just communication of like, hey, these are the roles that we have. Has everybody really you know, made sure that there's nobody you know out there that you want to be recruiting, helping us you know, refer to this role? The loop of how you're responding to people's work requests and feedback for the organization. And that is is the one that compounds. I don't know if I said that exactly the way I meant to, but the point is, I think most CEOs that I've worked with underappreciate and under-recognize how much they could help themselves on the, they could help their talent engines on the recruiting side by being as responsive as possible and thoughtful and proactive and just generally like caring about, you know, people's experience in the culture. And a lot of that does have to do with getting to this, you know, these atomic unit building blocks, like accountability is key. I think that's a very, very important word for people to like truly, especially for like young teams out there, new teams, like you got to have an emphasis on people being able to own things and to be able to drive when they're owning something and to be able to get the resources and make the case and live with the consequences. Like that's what accountability means. And that that's, that's the currency that an organization actually runs on. And so that's my views about, you know, at a high level for like, how you want to think about the management side, clean and clear communication. I'm really big on expectation setting. So this is every, this touches on all things, but you know, writing role descriptions that are compelling and also like paint an actual vivid picture. You know, if I, if I can read a role description that any company could have posted, like it's just, it's not the right, you didn't do it right. Like they should be like, you know, they should be as unique as possible. And, you know, you always can make improvements, but I think that's a key thing. Uh, career vectoring, so i.e., people people are in motion, right? Like people are div- are evolving, they're growing. You know, I think especially if you're talking about startup world, you know, the best people, so to speak, are intentionally evolving. They like to grow, they like to learn. So you want, you know, rather than sort of fighting gravity or being neutral on this, like you want to you want to see all of your people as being in motion. So the question becomes. How can you as a company support the fact that they're in motion to either guide them to where you want them to be and, or, you know, it's like a two-way street, like figure out, help them figure out where they want to be going and, and so on. So I just think it's a stance towards people that is different than the way that a lot of folks seem to think about roles, which is like, we hired this person to play that, you know, they've plugged into the org chart here, like now they are static in here. And it's like in the org chart model and the diagram, they're there, but the human that you hired is temporarily in this point and they're going to be evolving and growing. And so it's like, you got to have to have some way of acknowledging that, you know what I mean? And how you see it and, and what your operations are. And so that can get into like, you know, helping people career path or I don't know how you do alumni stuff. Like there's a whole, there's implications of that, but I think that's a key thing. So those are the main, I agree. Uh, and I, and I, yeah, those are the main, I think those are all the things I had written down. I was doing the, uh, make a list of my, <laughs> The uh, it's funny that on this career vectoring, I think that's really important. I I actually categorically dislike the where do you want to be in five years, yeah. and I much prefer the like what options do you want to open yes. here, right? Optionality Great. is is critical. Great. And and similarly on this, I uh, I love the idea of culture should hurt. It should not be that your culture is milk toast. Yes. It should be that your culture is clear. Yeah. <laughs> this if you like this, you will like it here. If you don't like that, you will not like it here. Yes. And I think having that clarity is hard, but I think it's incredibly critical. And I, you know, this is true, I think, in every function. In HR, it's, you know, culture should hurt. In marketing, it is, you know, your brand is what you won't do to grow, right? Right. Totally. And so I think you see this across across the board is what are the hard decisions and how are you going to motivate making them? 
So the the way it, it, I think there's one relevant thing here. There's a company called August in New York that does some cool kind of org design consulting, as far as I know. But one of their models for that, their version of the culture can hurt or should hurt, is they're called even overs, and it's like you define your culture by the by the edge cases of a situation, right? And it's like, what will you do? So I, you know, it's like our culture is defined as we would prefer taking a four hour meeting to talk about people's feelings, even over a clear meeting with action items where people felt unheard. And it's like, you want to create this extreme example to illustrate, like in that, in that case, it'd be like, we really value emotional communication. I don't know, just made that up. But I think the even overs is a good way of like, you should be able to list out as a company and it's not this like, do we have a good or bad, good and bad culture? I mean, look, there's toxic cultures out there for sure. And people should be clear eyed about that. And like, you know, that, that's not a good situation if you're in a toxic culture, but, but bar, taking those aside, I think you're right. It's like, it's more about what is the DNA of our culture and being really clear about that and having it be pronounced enough to your point that it stands out and it's kind of, it's sharply, it's in sharp focus. That's you know, how I'd put it. And I think, yeah, again, a lot of companies kind of just, I don't know, revert to the mean or have this sort of mush. It's a mush because it's not intentional. Yeah, this is the design by committee. Five people said this is good. That means it is completely devoid of any personality. Right. <laughs> right. I want to ask like two more very, very specific questions. And then I want to switch gears a little bit. Yeah. For the search owner. So what is the number of roles that a given search owner can focus on? Yeah, it's a good question. So it depends a little bit on how much support is, and I mean that in terms of like sourcers and coordinators. Uh, I also mean that in terms of how active the hiring, the, the, the client organization is, but somewhere between like eight and 10, I think is the upper limit. I mean, I, look, there's situations where good search owners get more than those on their plate. Are those situations where they're going to do the best job that can be done? I don't, I don't think so. You know, I've, I've had people Let's say like, um, and uh, we can just do some rapid fire, like people op stuff. Cause I think there'll be some of that and then we can get more into the compounding. So the search owner with absolutely no support, definitely not going to do eight or 10 at a time. Right. You know, they might have eight or 10 on a spreadsheet, but they're focusing on like one or two, right? Three, uh, yeah, th- three or four, probably three or four. Okay. And so they're, they're doing that, like that tip of the spear on three or four. And then they're like, cranking through those fast, getting them done, getting them off their plate, and then moving on to the next ones. Mm-hmm. And is that fair? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, source, sourcing support helps with that. I mean, it, you know, if, yeah, if you had, I think the way I would say it is you kind of want to stage it a little bit. So if you have 10, but you only have one search owner who's like just them, you know, you might, you might try to set up a pipelining scenario for two or three that are like not the top four so that those are at least percolating. I mean, you can touch, you know, search is all about the touch points, right? Touch points would be sourcing work, interviews, also like updating the ATS, processing people through, like there's all these touch points. So you can touch a lot of searches in a week. It's just, I mean, it's like, you know, you only have so much time. So you can either touch, you can either touch more searches and get less actually push forward on them, or you can touch fewer and get more push forward. But there is a limit to how fast and again, I'm taking aside fancy situations where you happen to meet the dream candidate who's in town and can come and meet. And it's like, you hit it off. Like, yeah, you can close the search faster than two weeks. But in my view, generalizing, you're not going to like, you're not going to reliably close a search faster than, I don't know, like four weeks, four to six weeks. Right. I mean, just like the way that the world works, it's very, it's rare, I think, to do that. So especially I'm saying if you're starting from scratch and you, and you want to be thorough and like rigorous. So 
Yeah. So maybe you're, maybe you're routing back and forth a bit yes. more. You've got 10 roles, but you're okay. Yeah. This week I'm doing these three and then those yeah. folks are going to be in scheduling. I'm going to do these three. Yeah. And you have a little, and you have a little map where you, you pre-block the on-site phase. And again, you, you might have to go around it a little bit, but you try to, you try to block like, so which days of which weeks are we going to be probably having the people from this search in the office or, you know what I mean? Like you kind of, you have to, you kind of block out your time, but yes, let's say, let's say that what we just said here is like a, a good heuristic. Great. And then I, and the other thing I've seen on this, and I'm curious if, especially given that you built such a diverse team at Hillary for America, um, I've seen that focusing on DNI and caring about it, which is something I, I do, you know, I kind of obsess over a little bit. What that functionally does is also change the cost of investment per finding those candidates. So I'm also pretty, you know, focused on making sure that sourcers are, even if it takes more time, spending that time to go out and find the pools of candidates that might not be the yeah. super easy, ready to apply folks. Yeah, is that, right. yeah. is that, does that also affect? Yeah, hundred percent. And that's what I was saying a minute ago. And I was saying like, when you're dealing with definitionally underrepresented backgrounds of whatever, whatever category, like th this is what I'm saying. Like it takes the extra time to find them, uh, to, you know, to weave it as part of the process and to, and to be rigorous in that way. You know, and, and then you mentioned this thing about referrals being kind of a good litmus test. Um, and I think that is actually very true. I want to hit on that in a second. But I, actually, as a side tip, one of the things I'd recommend, uh, and I'm sure you saw a bunch of this, um, is the amount of willingness for people to give referrals to their friends is a huge sign of, of culture, as you've highlighted. Huge. And the language that they use to refer people is an excellent source of learning about what is the job actually, right? The hiring manager has here's what it is, but the person doing the job has the actual language that's going to appeal or clearly define to the, to the end candidate. What are the other sources that, you know, a well-functioning talent engine has, and what's the like rough breakdown of where you're getting them? How much are you getting referrals? How much are you sourcing actively? What's coming in inbound off the job board? It's just, it's, it's really hard to generalize. I'm not, I'm not, I'll, I'll give you, I'm not going to dodge it entirely, but I, I'll, I'm going to give you an answer. That's not exactly the percentages thing. I mean, you want to have, so, so direct sourcing and just generally outbound sourcing is the one camp as the one bucket of work where you can reliably invest more time and money and get better results. So you always want to have a, a function there. You always want to be doing, you know, Again, I don't think about it as much as in terms of the percentage. I think about the, I think about your question here in terms of inputs more than actual outcomes because the outcomes can range and flex over the over time. But what's important is how you're thinking about the the input. So you know it'll vary if, if you if you go by finalist stage percentages and hires. You know it'll flex whether it's you know equal thirds or something. I mean, I guess sort of a baseline of a you know in some theoretical organization that's at some theoretical size and velocity that's compelling to the talent market, you know, something like equal thirds is like, I guess the theoretical answer to your question. Like you want to have like about a third of people that you went and found about a third of people that were your people told you were good and are coming in and about a third of people who found you. Uh, that's, but again, that's very theoretical. So I think in reality, it's like you, uh, you want to make sure that you have some outbound sourcing muscle always. And you also want to be, I think there's just, you want to be tapped on your referrals. Like you want to make sure that you have left no stone unturned with wrangling 
which is the word I would wind up using in most cases, your team to give you referrals. And, and I completely agree with you. If your talent team can't get your team to be giving referrals, you something, there's a red flag somewhere. Like I, you either have a culture issue or you have a talent team issue or you have something is not, or there's like a communication problem. They don't realize how important it's like, something's not right. That is worth attention because yeah. Well, and then, and then, well, sorry, one, just to close that thought. So then the last bucket is like, you know, generally speaking, especially if you're in the world of tech, your velocity as a company, this is like the, the Mark Andreessen post, right? Like your best talent strategy is to be winning. <laughs> if you have a problem with talent, that's not kind of logistics and operations and people knowing what they're doing, it's, you're probably have a winning problem. But in the, when it comes to the talent team, that third bucket of, of inbound is like, you know, you should have a good careers page which just means it's clean and clear. You know, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to like reinvent the wheel. It's not to be rocket science, but like you should have a team page that shows who people are, where they came from. Um, and you should have some thought about, you know, content or, you know, having your CEO, it's like, where's your CEO speaking? Like, I think there should be some sense of from the marketing view. And I actually, I'm, I subscribe to the notion, this is a Ben Katesh Rao thing of, you know, the maneuvers versus melee is like, you know, marketing, like the, the part of recruiting that is the sales aspect, like closing candidates, that's important. That's like a melee, right? That's like, we got to like in real time kind of get what we need here, but the, but the real power of the engine and we build it well is more the marketing view, which is the maneuver. It's like getting upstream. So it's like, can, is the story about our company reaching the right people in the right, you know, or proportions and in the right ways. And is the, is the process of them, this is just the recruiting ops. Is it, is, is the process of them coming in and being evaluated, you know, mutually effective in a way that they're excited to work here. So that is to say, I do subscribe to the notion that like people who try to like, sometimes CEOs will come and say, I'm trying to hire this, you know, recruiter who's just like, they're, they're, they're like cold calling people. And I'm like, you can't build a talent engine. In my view, you can't build a good one on like a sales recruiting strategy, right? Like you can't build it with just melee because all you're doing there is just like, eventually you're going to run out of your Rolodex or you're going to run out of your energy, right? Like you have to build the talent brand and that get, and it's just, gets into all these other things that we've talked about. So I guess that's just to say in order to be getting good inbound, like you need to have someone who's thinking about how does this company look to the outside to people who we think should work here? And that's, that's a marketing question. I think you're, you're hitting on the important levers here, which is your three categories are basically referrals, inbound and outbound. And if you want to fix your outbound, it's going to be a lot of, you know, good sourcing, mechanically good processes, figuring out what the, you know, what that kind of hand to hand combat looks like. Uh, maybe there's some ads for broader push, but that's kind of outbound is that process in inbound is going to be about your brand. It's, are you winning and are you presenting yourself to the world? Well, yes. um, and referral is going to be your culture. Like if people like working there, they'll refer and there's yeah. a process to that. But, uh, yes. if they don't like working there, it doesn't matter what your process is. They're not going to tell their friends. I think that is very, I think that is very well summarized. Yes. Well distilled. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. So just pivoting into some of the kind of HRC discussion. And I, and I think you've got, I mean, your experience is uh, very rich and easy to mine for puns, right? You can, uh, I mean, you're the first talent role in a presidential campaign, which I actually didn't know until this conversation, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so whether it's, you know, plays on the word of candidates or, uh, you know, putting the, the HR and HRC, uh, um, yeah, it seems like you've got a pretty good 
kind of vantage point to talk about what went well and what went poorly in trying to figure out how to scale an organization by that magnitude thoughtfully in an 18 month period of time with, you know, with some kind of, you know, exploding, uh, exploding deadline here. And so I'm, I'm curious, maybe just at the, at the start of this, you know, I, I'm curious kind of who was Hillary, but not in the standpoint of a, you know, political discourse, but I think you, you called out this idea of like vision and management. And I don't think you use the word efficiency, but I've kind of noted that down of the kind of leader as it applies to helping build a team. Who was Hillary in that context? This is a great question. So a couple of a preamble to that. First of all, I have to give you credit. Amazingly, no one, including myself, has come up with either of those two puns, particularly the putting the HR and HRC, which is just, which is crazy to me. So props to coming up with a very good pun. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the other, the other thing I will say is this is, this is sort of the, the good, the good part of the, the, the private conversation. So Hillary actually, um, officiated our wedding. So I know her, uh, I know her well enough and we know her well enough that she officiated our wedding, but but my answer, I guess there's a caveat is like my answer, I'm, I'm going to be answer this as somebody who's still has, I guess, you know, some kind of relationship with her. So, you know, that's, that, that'll be part of it. The reality of a presidential campaign is that the candidate is not running the organization in any way, shape or form. So, I mean, I think what you could say is Hillary and her team of, you know, her, her inner circle, they, they chose a campaign manager and they chose you know, I, I don't know the exact sequence of, I, I, my assumption is that some of the divisional heads were chosen kind of parallel to the campaign manager. And then Robbie probably wound up making the call or weighed in on some of the others. But other than that, and, you know, routing, you know, like her, again, her people probably said, Hey, like X, Y, and Z folks need to get certain roles or would be good for this. Like, I think there's like a rec- recommendation function, but the reality is her job in that environment is to be, on the road all the time. And she was like, she's a hustler. I mean, her, she talked about a high output schedule. I mean, she was going from 5 AM until, you know, almost midnight or something. I don't know, like every day for like two years, um, with very few, with very few exceptions. So I think the first thing to understand is that, and this is even true at of campaigns at I think smaller scales, but the first thing to understand is like the, the candidate is really not the CEO. Um, and the CEO is probably, a stretch of an analogy to the campaign manager, but it's, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a, maybe it's an 80% overlap of how you'd think about it. Um, so that's one thing the, in terms of, you know, the constraints of the talent role. I, I personally, I think I, you know, I learned a lot that I think is highly relevant. I mean, for one thing, I got to see 11 different departments like cultures and quirks and, approaches, you know, play out over two years, which is, I don't know, two years is like a legitimate era of a startup. Um, so that was a, that was a real thing, uh, let alone like all the melee stuff, you know, all these, how many conversations and triangulation context. So I do, I think I learned a lot. I do think that, you know, there's some things that are unique about the campaign. Like you're building an organization that's designed to end. It's a billion dollar organization. So it's big, but like it's, it's a one way, it's a one-way ramp. It doesn't need the kind of engines and operations that a company that's intending to persist needs. So that is to say, we were able to sketch out a roadmap that was more anchored in time versus in 
transition gates or phases or unlocking, you know, I'm thinking like in startups, you kind of measure you, you, in my view, like you really should be orienting around things like, are we, are we, do we have, do we think we have product market fit or not yet? Or have we reached this NPS score or whatever, you know, whatever the thing is, I don't know, different models, but it's, it's like, you don't say like, well, in six months, we're definitely going to be here. It's like, no, it's based on what you can achieve. That's not really how it was there. Like we, we, we had a schedule when you had hit it. So I was able to backcast pretty, pretty concretely almost to the week, essentially from the beginning, like here's where we need to be at each thing and kind of just make the case. Then that's how I was able to get the staff and, you know, dial up the interns. And I could, I could see ahead, I guess is what I'm trying to say more than I think a lot of companies might be able to. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the other things that I didn't mention, that I think is a cool mix, um, is of the mix of campaign world and kind of like, I don't know, private sector talent is we actually did. So I, for the first time, so I called Laszlo Bach. I got a hold of him when I first got the job. I didn't know him before that. And I was basically like, hi, like if you're me, I was like, help. Like if you're me, what is the one thing in addition to just trying to do my job in the baseline, what's the one thing you would do to try to, you know, tilt this thing half a degree in the direction of winning versus losing. And he said, I would do manager upward scoring uh, periodically and have people take it seriously and, you know, try to give people feedback about their management because that stuff really matters. And, you know, it's like, a, it's like one thing to do, but it like has all these ripple effects. And so I did, I took that advice and I sold cause it was not a mandate. I was a service provider. So I didn't have like mandate power, which is frustrating in certain sense, but also realistic and just is the deal. And I think a lot of, a lot of talent teams are this way in companies couldn't make anybody do anything. So I had to go and sell to every single department head. Hey, I want to have your managers get scored by their teams anonymously on these seven dimensions and show them the feedback and have them, you know, make some comment to their teams afterwards about the feedback they got. And it's going to be uncomfortable. And I want to do this every other month for the next year. And this is a thing that they never, no, 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 never's never done this in a campaign before. It's like, this is like anathema to campaign culture, right? Campaigns are historically, you know, work hard, not really work smart. I know I'm, I'm generalizing, but the energy of a campaign, especially more local ones, it's very much like work hard in the models that you think work. And it, there's very little relative to everything. There's very little creativity, which by the way, is why when you do have creativity in a different way, I'm thinking of like AOC or, you know, some other candidates, like it really goes a long way because suddenly the work smart quotient is like, there's a lot of returns there. I don't know how to put it. There's a lot of alpha in politics and being creative, I guess, or something, if, you, if you're creative in the right way. So that is to say that we did the upward scoring and we, we increased the manager scores with a combination of just the feedback mechanism, like just doing the, doing the, doing the feedback uh, surveys and giving the heat maps of the departments to the department heads, so they could see who, who was, you know, basically who was having problems along which lines as managers, we increased the scores by 40%, which is actually a lot in, you know, like nine months basically. And we, we had some, you know, we had some training, some management 101, you know, here's how to think about it. And there was a range of folks who've not been managers before, or they're very young and they've been a manager technically, but certainly never trained. And so it was a mix. So we try to equalize it. And so I was happy with that because I feel like, you know, all things be considered like in that environment, that was a pretty good, if you have one arrow and you're in, again, this is in addition to all this, like the recruiting ops and just like the basics of the job of like, you're trying to get people hired. You know, if you have one arrow to shoot, I think that that was a pretty good one. So I felt, I felt happy with that. Um, and that's a thing that I've, you know, continued to advocate in other clients and, um, you know, environments after that. How did you mechanically do that? Was that software? Was that Google forms? 
we 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 did google we, we just we uh yeah we just duct taped it together with google forms who's doing the duct tape design of these things is this like you did you hire somebody this was bailey evans if i can say she was excellent she was um she now works the new york times she was my talent uh kind of second and she was in college when uh when we started she i'm trying to remember exactly she graduated I think she graduated like in the last, I'm forgetting exactly when she graduated, but so she was somebody who I trained up like from, from, you know, the get-go and just really took talent. She did a great job. Um, and so, yeah, like when that project kind of got greenlit, it was like, you know, Hey, we need, we need a plan for this. So I think, I don't remember, she put it together and I, you know, signed off on it or made sure that it looked right. And then, yeah, she administered it. And, you know, obviously that was all confidential. Like, we made sure that only the right people ever saw the scores and everything. But, um, yeah, it was, that was a, that was a very DIY. We, we did use other, we used lever for, um, the nationwide ATS and we had a centralized resume intake. And then we had like this kind of complicated, like tagging and routing protocol that again, Bailey designed and I kind of signed off on that was like, you know, how, I mean, it was, maybe that was a little more co-design, but it was like, we basically were trying to figure out how do we have, all these different states hiring people who are in the resumes are hitting from everywhere, but sometimes someone who applied in Florida would be better in Ohio and so on. So like that was actually pretty complicated, but what we did use lever to do that. And then we used greenhouse for our, I think it was like analytics and engineering and some of the more, I don't know, the, the lower volume, um, more rigorous steps in the hiring at HQ, we used greenhouse. So we had a combo of tools stack. Why, why split between lever and greenhouse? So greenhouse certainly has more yeah. kind of structure. Greenhouse couldn't do what we needed it to do for, and I, I'm like forgetting exactly why it was, it, and I don't think it was a cost consideration, although it may have also been a cost consideration, but I think that they couldn't do the talent pooling. Cause one of the things that lever does well is it kind of views talent as like a stream it's like these streams of talent and that was actually was what was happening we had streams coming in and then we had streams flowing out to the different states and for something it was like the way that greenhouse was set up we couldn't easily get like lists of candidates that multiple hiring managers in multiple states could see and pull from in advance and then like blind to the others the kind of claim like it just we couldn't we couldn't see how it it could work that's my that's my my recollection Got it. And then the, there's another thing you kind of called out here, which was the you know, difference than the, the structure, the process was also the kind of teaching. And so where did these presentations come from, right? Like management 101, where, where does that stem from? I made that up. I mean, I didn't make up the material, but I, I, I put together the, the presentation and that was, so one of the things like going back to rework, you know, we were, we were, we were startups. So like we were always exploring different things. And in addition to doing recruiting, we also had a, like a, in retrospect, oddball side business, or I guess a business line that was, um, like hackathon style. It sounds weird to say at this moment, but like rapid prototyping, like basically like professional development events called uh, scrimmages. And so via the scrimmages, it, it was sort of a way of engaging our talent community. And it was, they were interesting. It was like, we would get you know, mission-driven companies who had projects that needed done to come in and we would kind of teach rapid prototyping and, you know, they would, people would, you know, join these teams for the day and everyone learns a lot and, you know, has fun, that kind of thing. And out of that had spawned a couple of just kind of like random, you know, consulting engagements or asks to speak. So I had, I mean, we had put together and I put together, put it this way, 
compared to a firm that like only did recruiting, we had we had scoped the landscape a bit more of like what are the other pieces of people operations and what's going on inside a company. So we we had a body of I don't know literature or just a body of work that we thought was compelling about management. Um, and so I had put it I had I had a foundation to like build on. Um, so we're talking about stuff like situational leadership of like you know you've got the two dimensions of you got guidance and directive behavior when you're managing, you also have emotional support. And like, even just that two by two right there is a very interesting frame for people who've never seen it before of like, oh, right, there's these two elements that I'm actually needing to be considerate of for people on my team. And like, they'll be in different places at different times. And I have to be aware of this. There's a bit of a cycle to it. So there was that, you know, stuff like how to have hard conversations. So that was like really direct stuff. Like, you know, right out ahead of time, don't make it personal. Like, you know, expect that they're going to happen. Like you just sort of like getting people in the, in the mental state of like some of these things are going to happen. So here's how to be ready for it. Um, you know, the stuff like pay attention to managing your energy, not just your time, you know, here's how to block your calendar and make sure that your teams are blocking their calendars. Cause again, I was trying to counteract this idea that basically in campaigns, all things being equal, mostly, most of the people are just like, they're just working long hours to accomplish what they need to do. And part of that's cause there's endless amounts to do. So I get that, but it is. It was not. I guess I'll, I'll speak. You know, as as precise as I can. In that environment, it was clear to me that the prevailing patterns of how people thought about being effective mostly included how to work more and 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 very little about how to be like organized better or to self manage better and so on. So I was. Re- I got really into like make sure that you understand what your team's calendars look like and correct them. And later, I had saw that this is another Keith Raboy thing that I saw. And I was like, yeah, totally. Like that makes perfect sense that he's telling people to do that because it's crazy, right? Like if someone doesn't know how to be effective, their time is just this, like your calendar should be the, I don't know the input outputs exactly the right term, but your, your calendar should be a leading piece of your effectiveness strategy. Not like the end point of just like a bunch of shit you have to do that like turns into what your calendar looks like every week. Right. So I'm really into like blocking time and recurring self events and so on, just to like, make sure that it's all, you know, all going to happen. You, you, know, you can move stuff around, but anyway, there's an intentionality there that I think was new. So it, those trainings were like that. It wasn't anything, it wasn't like PhD level management theory, but it was, but it was very, I think helpful for people to just have a setting to be like, and what about if this happens and, you know, and this is happening and how do I, you know, and some of it's just coaching. It's like, Hey, like, you know, that that's a tough situation. Here's how we can handle that. So I was adjacent to the HR team and anything that was actual incidents or whatever would like be handled by HR, but everything else, which was, the you know, I'll say the majority, a lot of stuff that was in that gray zone of like people just being difficult, that would come to me. And it was like, here's how we're going to handle this. And, you know, campaigns also have a weird thing about, they don't like to fire people. This was actually one of my main, like, I don't know, frustrations. I don't want to sound like a jerk, but it became clear to me within you know probably four or five months, there were certain situations I was hearing about where I'm like, this person sh- shouldn't be working here. And they're like, yeah, but you know, they don't want to fire people because it can, you know, it can create ill feelings. And then you've got a story and you know, it's a real consideration. So I'm like, all right, I get it. So they just, they just layer people. And it's this sort of like, and this is, this is not unique to Hillary. This is just like, this is like a campaign thing. And so it's just like the, the management approach. And I'm like, all right. So we have all these weird situations where I'm like, I'm pretty sure it would have been better if we just said, look, this isn't working like, you know, totally anathema to a campaign, but we'll pay you, I don't know, two weeks or four weeks, seven weeks or something like this isn't working. We're sorry. Like, 
I'm like, that conversation probably would have been what should have happened, but instead, like, they got layered and they're working there now, like, kind of disgruntled or, I don't know, or at least not feeling good about themselves for, like, the next year or whatever. They get moved around. So, I don't know. There's something about the... I don't know what you'd call that. There's a, there's a hard edge that I think that's in the private sector that's certainly more effective at like correcting talent errors that I don't think campaigns have the typically they don't have the muscle for, um, or at least at that level, you know, th- there's like too many other considerations that that would be. You have to be you have to do something really 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 crazy, which did happen, you know, to get fired from that campaign. Is that hard edge of the private sector? more effective just for the organization or is it more effective for the people too? I mean, I think, I, I think it would be pretty easy to say that if someone's not effective where they are, they shouldn't be there for them or for the place. So I would say, you know, you may be creating temporary, I mean, look, no one likes to fire someone, but if someone's not working out, like they should go somewhere else. So I think I, I would say at the net categorically, like, I think it's a good thing that companies, I think, I think there should be a high bar, you know, it's like I'm a high output person or like there should be a high bar for performance. I, I would say mm-hmm. to caveat that, like to the extent that a company is capable of and has the time and energy to invest in developing people and supporting them. Yes. That also like, like set a high bar and help people reach it. It's, you know, anybody can set an impossible bar and then like lament people for not hitting it. But it's like, if you set a high bar, like yes, set a high bar, also try to support people and you know, you do the best you can. If, if you just can't do it, then you just can't do it. And they didn't meet the bar, then, then they, they probably should go. But it's like, it's like, it's like set a high bar, but don't be heartless. That's kind of my, that's kind of my like approach. Yeah. Well, I, it's funny. I, I actually see this kind of people development stuff you've talked about briefly there, um, as having two parts. One is the, the, it's the push of, you know, we care about holistic human development here's some 80, 20 tips to do. And the second part is the kind of receptive audience of the employee base. Like, Hey, I'm curious. I want to get better. And I'm willing to listen to this stuff. Um, certainly, you know, you and I, in this conversation, we've referenced like 20 other people we've learned from. Right. right? And so, yeah, if people are not willing to engage in that way, then it's, they're, they're, they're going to view the sitting through the 20, you know, the 80, 20 PowerPoint of how to be a good manager as like, I got stuff to do, get out of my way. Well, and I'm, I'm curious on this. So like how much of this was the push versus the pull? How much of this is because you're a systems thinker, you're curious, you're condensing this information into the 80-20 versus how much of this was like, you just had a really receptive employee base. They were really receptive. They were, I think it was both of those things. Like I was proactive. I mean, again, my remit was like, build your own playbook and execute it. And, you know, I, I called my shots. Like I set the expectations with you know, like the COO, I'm like, this is what I'm going to do after, you know, after a couple months when I got my, got my head on straight, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. So I set the bar, like what I was going to accomplish. And then she was holding me to what I said I was going to accomplish, but I, they were looking to, you know, I think they were like, kind of like waiting for me to say what, what I thought was appropriate, but, but no, I mean, the teams were, I, you know, 90%, um, appreciative. And I, I think part of that style and delivery, like I was basically like, Hey, this stuff's really helpful. Like give it a chance. You'll find it useful how can I make it more, you know, as I was doing like good customer, you know, service in the delivery of it. But I think people appreciate professional development. It's also rare on campaigns to be, to have that access. Right. Again, that, that was, I don't know, I, there are trainings on campaigns, but usually it's like training and how to do organizing. And so you, you get a little bit of like generalized professional development, but I don't, I don't want to speak out of turn about Obama's, but I'm, I'm not aware that they had any like institutional full stack management one-on-ones that were like, they were mandatory for every 
sorry, I, I, I said a thing that wasn't true on one case. Those we got to say, I got, I went to the senior staff and said, can you make it mandatory for your teams to come to these trainings? At least show up. I mean, showing up was mandatory. The you know engagements never, you can't force it. But right. um, so that was, the, I know a few minutes ago I said nothing was mandatory, but that I sold that to the department heads as well. And then they, they made sure their teams went, but no, people were, I mean, people were really into it. I'm struck by kind of a maybe narrative violation. Maybe this is exposing my own bias here, but I'm having an, an extraordinarily hard time imagining Trump's campaign team doing any of this. No, they didn't do any of that. <laughs> no, I mean, um, <laughs> uh, that's okay. So my, so maybe my, my assumption is not incorrect. I mean, I wasn't on, I mean, I wasn't there, but I can, I, I, I think that it would, I think that it's safe to say, I mean, well, I'd cut you off. Go ahead. Is there a question or anything specific there? Yeah. Well, I, and, and maybe, Hey, we're, we're both probably biased on this, but, um, but given that it seems unlikely, especially given, you know, the, the dynamics of changes and chaos on his campaign, that any of this was happening. And I'm, I'm curious, like, what is the, like, why, you know, I'm a big believer in the idea that the, you know, the team you build is the company you build and the people you have around you is, you know, like a, a, the critical function of success, frankly, it's what invents the win. Right, exactly. Why did Trump win when he's not doing any of these things? Yeah. And you know, someone in my position has to really sit and think about that. Right. Um, so I would answer that two ways and the two things I would say, and they, they go together. I mean, it's in no particular order. We fought the last war on the org design. And I think I, I don't fault us for it. Like this goes back to like the, you know, legacy document, you know, whatever they looked at from, look, we built a third Obama campaign and we built a great version of it, by the way, we, we beat Obama's stats by like multiple, you know, by 20 and 30%. I'm talking about like doors knocked the email list size. Like we beat their stats in record time on pretty much everything that I was aware of. Um, so in terms of like overperforming on the model, like we, we, we did, we ran a better Obama model. But we didn't win. And so to answer your question, you know, I, I think it's hard to get, when anything's that close, it's multifactorial, right? So the real question of like, how did Trump, like you have to start with like, well, how did Trump win? It's like, you know, we could, there's endless sort of, it's a lot of things and blah, blah, blah. I think to get at your point of like, why did he win despite being a chaotic organization is that, you know, they did enough things right, I guess, or how I put it, they, they did enough of the smart things that the chaos didn't bring them down. And also, another thing that I was going to say earlier about Obama, and I think it would be true here as well, you know, when you win, you're, you're like geniuses. And when you lose, it's like the opposite. And so, I think from what I heard, I wasn't, a, I wasn't there, but I think there was like plenty of stuff at the Obama campaigns that like, if he didn't win, you know, either would have come out that was like sloppy or I guess what I'm trying to say is like, if Romney had won, like, you know, we'd be saying like, well, Romney was the smartest turnout and blah, blah, blah. So I guess, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I think we probably got right with a few, I don't even know. I don't know if errors the right, it, clearly some of the, I mean, we didn't win. So some of the stuff that we did didn't turn into the results we wanted, but I don't, but it's hard to say, like to take away that, like any one aspect of, of the model, you know, was at fault and on and corollary on his side, on Trump's side, like, yeah, he did just enough things and I'm talking everything, it's full stack, just enough brand polarization, just enough adherence to stuff that more mainstream Republicans would want, I'm like Supreme Court promises, you know, that kind of thing. Like he did just enough to be within striking distance and 
you know, look, his audience, I mean, not that ours would have cared particularly either, but I think we like his audience just doesn't care about a chaotic leadership style. Like they don't care about, they don't care about his organization. So, so the idea, you know, like it was a point of pride for us and I, I'm proud of it. It was a point of pride for us that we had the most diverse organization in history, or sorry, campaign organization. And, you know, his audience just couldn't care less about something like that. So like, I guess I just, I guess what I'm saying is when you add up the digital strategies that they used, which I'm not an expert in, but, you know, as I gather their data and digital stuff was pretty relevant, you know, with the messaging, with the brand polarization, with kind of the political maneuvering, with the realities of their party and blah, blah, blah. When you add it all up, it wasn't enough to sync them is how I would, is how I would put it. You know, would I want to run a strategy of being okay with that kind of chaos in most campaigns? I would not recommend it. I think it's better to try to do something like what we did, but in that case, yeah, trust me. I was, I was, <laughs> I was asking myself this question and like really trying to analyze it for, for like, it wasn't even after he won. It was like the whole last three months. I'm like, I'm like, how is this happening? Um, and from my lens, right, from the people cool. lens, and it's like, you know, his organization, even more than ours, I think really ran on a few people making a few decisions at the top. And so there was a little bit more nimble. I mean, I don't think we were like super hampered by this, but I, you know, there was a little bit more of like a just evolve day to day and try shit. When you're, when you're, when you're not the front runner, you can, you have to try everything you can think of because you're default dead. And this goes to like, this is an interesting, I, I had a whole thing that, or not a whole thing, but a couple of things I want to talk about, like startupisms crossing over with campaignisms. Like you, when you start a campaign, when you're not the front runner, when you're the insurgent, like you need to try everything you can to either convince yourself that you're on track, that your momentum is going to carry you, that you break over, you know, the way that you beat someone who's an incumbent is not that you like become more popular than them on the second week that you run, right? You, you, you build a machine that can reliably convert and build positive IDs that you can see in your graph the week before, or like, you know, the, the two weeks before the election, you're going to cross the 50-50 mark and you're going to have more than that. That's what you're trying to build. And so until you actually cross it, you're default dead. If the election was held at any time, you lose. This is true of AOC. You know, she was polling down 30 points two weeks before she won. Alessandra, my wife, you know, we never ran a poll because it just wasn't, it, we were going to work our hearts out no matter what, you know, it's like, it, did, we, it, didn't, it didn't make sense for us to spend money on the poll, but it was pretty clear. Like she peaked at the right time because we had a good strategy. And so it's almost like it, it makes it hard for the incumbent, right? Cause you, you, you're trying to stop somebody from gaining momentum more than you're trying to like, I don't know, trying to find the right mental model to explain it. But so, yeah, I think Trump was trying anything he could and you know, it worked. So the, uh, yeah, I talk often about, I'm thinking I, I'm tying this obviously to like, probably very bad, um, uh, analogies. Cause you know, my world is, you know, private enterprise right. and marketing background and, you know, general business operations and such. But if I think about this in the context of like, you know, marketing campaigns, right. It's like, well, try a lot of stuff cheaply and double down on what works. And the experimentation yes. is going to be what matters. Is that a, yes. is that a decent analogy? Well, Where I mean, does that analogy it, fail? It's a decent analogy when you're a candidate in there and in his position. I mean, he thrives on controversy. You know, he's got nothing to lose when it comes to when you start your campaign by saying, you know, the things he said in his announcement speech, like you just, he has nothing to lose. So like he's going to push the lines and try things. And, you know, as far as I know, I don't know, Jared Kushner experimenting with digital firms and so on, you know, they, they took Ted Cruz's operation when he dropped out, like they were trying anything they could think of. And I think they, they were effective in that. Um, I think the way to think about campaigns is, I mean, look, 
you have to let's so talking not about presidential even though it's also about that i'm saying for at all levels you know there's a lot that's similar you have actual finance and fundraising it is literally revenue you're raising money but like you're not selling a thing you're 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 selling like buy-in or something is the way to think of it so like you are trying to balance your budget although you're not spending typically while you're raising you're, you're basically like you know you're trying to raise and then have enough saved up to deploy it with good strategy in the last waves of the campaign there's always these phases we, you know we wouldn't even get into all of it but there's these phases of strategy so it's not a i think people think of it as like kind of a marathon you know it's it, it's more it's more like a phased fight or something um and i think people also think of it like boxing where it's like they see candidates kind of hitting each other and yeah there's some aspect of that but this is going to be a funny weird little analogy but i think the best way to picture from a strategy and from a muscle memory sort of a like a like a modality standpoint i can running a campaign is like being in a is, is like being in tug of war while on top of the tug of war you know, contest, you're playing a board game like Settlers of Catan or something. I don't know. And on top of that, sometimes you're also boxing. So what it is, is you are, you are putting in sustained effort on a day-to-day basis for your team to outreach and convert more people to being positive IDs. That's the tug of war. The board game is the other political electeds. It's, you know, labor unions, like this sort of like, how are, how are the power pieces around you in the environment that are going to affect the tug of war. Like if you can convert this person to being your supporter, they're going to like get their people out for you, that kind of thing. The, the board game dynamics is very much like a, you know, you're playing the, like if you're, if you're good at board games, specifically strategy games, you know, it's like you're playing the players, not, not just the game, right? you like, you have to like be looking and understand like, what are people's motivations? What do they care about? What are they afraid of? Blah, blah, blah. And then on top of that, you're like taking swings and getting hits and you know, you're like, duking it out with the candidate and you know that ranges from very cordial to very fiery depending on where you are and what the politics are but so it's a it's a complicated endeavor for whoever the strategist is and typically that's like the candidate and the campaign manager and you know maybe somebody else but it's like it's it's not an easy thing and i think it can look simpler or something and then it is i don't know i don't know how it looks from the outside but that's kind of that's how i would describe like what you're having to do, which I think is, I don't think it's, that's not the main dynamic at most startups, for example, you may have some elements of different things there, but it's like, yeah, you don't have to do all three of that all the time. Most startups. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, that's a really interesting kind of look behind the curtain. And I do think is a, is a bit different and it's, it's interesting. I'm a Matt, you know, two by twos are interesting because they, they trigger thoughts, but I, I'm imagining that there is actually simplistic narratives in the Trump versus Hillary campaign and probably in most campaigns. But the reality is it's not just outsider versus insider or insurgent versus incumbent. Those really are two kind of different vectors, right? You could be a, you know, insider insurgent, for example. I mean, in fact, I'd I'd argue that to some degree, your wife's campaign fit more into that bucket. Is that fair? Just say it again. I just, you said she fit into which bucket more? Uh, more of kind of like a, uh, an insider, like not trying to like you know, yeah. bur- burn the house down kind of thing, but insurgent, yeah. like going against a, you know, a power player with a lot of aligned interest. If you had a two by two of, yeah, realistically, I guess in good faith, I think that is probably the bucket she'd be in because she, you know, had worked in presidential politics and, you know, because of her grandfather. So yes, she was not some like 
totally left field person. Although in the race, she came out of nowhere. Like she wasn't, you know, it, no one, no one like knew she was going to do that. And she didn't even know she was going to do that until she did kind of thing. So she did not have the support of like the democratic party in New York and so on. So she was an insurgent and she was funded entirely by, you know, the grassroots. But to your point, she was, I think people were comfortable with the fact that she like, she could be trusted to like know politics well enough to like not be a total outsider kind of thing. I think some, there was something of that that you're, I think you're right about. Well, and, and maybe what I'm kind of, you know, casting as the difference here is, uh, is the chaos of change, right? So is this somebody who wants to iteratively improve the world? Um, which, yeah, let's call an Obama certainly in the category of insurgent, but you know, not somebody who wanted to burn the house down and rebuild, and Trump was, you know, certainly an insurgent, um, but but ran on the drain the swamp message, right? And so it feels like there's a there's a distinction here that is that you know triggers difference in campaign style. Uh, yeah. So two things to this. The first thing I'll say is, and this is the me being wonky and precise and everything. The the issue is that when you're running for any, so at the at the city level, state level, and then federal, and depending on the office, because executive role thing are different than legislators and so on. The problem is, it's it's actually more complicated than you know iterative versus I don't know bold. Let's call it bold of like trend, you know, transformative change or something. The issue is more like of all the issues that are relevant here, on which ones do you want to be iterative or hold the line or, or whatever, and on which ones because you know there's all these problems, right? So it's like what do you, it's like the question is like which ones you think are actually the most priorities and how bold do you want to be? So there's multiple. And I think, you know, something like the 2020 candidates for the Dems is a good, you could probably map this. I haven't done it, but you could probably map a pretty interesting little graph of like by the issue area, who wants to like more or less iteratively, you know, I don't know, expand on what would have been Obama's policies or something and who wants to like flip the board over and like start again. And, you know, what does that look like? Um, so that's one thing. I think that the best, zoomed out way to, I don't know, make sense of, or maybe predict, you know, who's going to win or something or who won is this is another Venkatesh Rao thing. It's like the big story. And I think who, which candidacy fits with the message of the candidate. It's kind of like the candidate, you, you, have, you have your candidate, which is like their personality and their track record basically. And then you have their message, which is like what they're saying they're going to do. And like, they're kind of their theory of the case. And then you have like the cultural reception of the audience. Like what is the, you know, by and large, the voters that are in question for this election, what do they care about? What do they think? And so the best way for me to, I think, make sense of a Trump win would be to say something like, I think that by a very, very slim couple thousand vote margin in a few states, you know, the big story of things aren't working, or it's certainly that things aren't working as well as, I don't know, the Obama administration kind of thought or seemed to project was a boy it was a more it was a bigger story right the, the story of the big story of we're going to surge ahead and build on the progress and so on you know the popular vote agreed with that and that was hillary's story and you know we could debate whether we told it the best way and probably there's things we could have done better but her yeah, her story was essentially like we're gonna we can run up the score on uh, with progressive enhancements. She was more or less, she was to the left of Obama, but she was certainly building on his frameworks and we can run up the score or something like that. And we should, and we should do it now. And I'm the best person to do that. And I'm, and I'm running. And Trump's big story was things are fucked up. 
and you know they don't care about you and things have been broken for decades. And you know, like, like he, he wasn't wrong about his diagnosis of a lot of the problems. I mean, some of the, a lot of stuff he was saying was true. The, the issue is, and then, you know, it's like, I'm somebody who takes stuff seriously, right? So I'm, 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 I'm almost taking Trump more seriously than I, than I even want to, but it's like, the problem is that everything else, and this was you know clear to a lot of people, but everything else about him as a person to do anything about this or actually care about, you know, it's like, I think that's where it got frustrating where it's like, look, He's not wrong about everything he's saying. He's sort of whatever. We don't have to get into the whole thing about Trump because I think people have their own views about him. But I think it's important to acknowledge, whether it's as Democrats or just as engaged Americans or whatever, it is important to acknowledge like the reasons why that big story was more resonant. Um, and it, that was not an aberration. That was not like some fluke. Like people really were like really pissed about the bailouts and the financial crisis and all that stuff. So I guess, I guess that's like how I would like sort of square that, um, that question. Well, and I think this is true in the private sector as well. When you see, you know, big companies replace CEOs or even, you know, growth companies replace CEOs. Um, it is often because the CEO has a worldview and then the world changes. Yeah. Uh, and actually this is something I think you could actively manage against, which is if the world changes, and the person running your company is, you know, from the last era, um, you probably need to start planning for finding the leader for the next era, right? Whereas if the leader is somebody who navigated that era well, then they're still well-situated for it. And I think you see this, you know, Balmer at Microsoft versus Satya, and Balmer's talented. Balmer's incredibly smart. And I think he gets less credit than he deserves for what he did at Microsoft. But the the, the world changed, right? You know, the the cloud like the, the cloud stuff changed, the mobile stuff changed, and that was just not where twenty or thirty years of Balmer's experience lied. So he was not the person to lead that transition. Um, whereas Satya came of age in that world, so he was you know more equipped for it. I think this is an interesting point. You you made the point earlier that it's easy to overlearn yes. from you know what was the outcome, right? Like, well, uh, Hillary ran a bad campaign and Trump ran a good one. It's like, well, not necessarily. Uh, there's a lot more nuance and, and kind of wonk to it. But I, I am curious about the. In fact, actually, maybe getting out of the outcome. Like, if the wonk story of this is, you know, we built a a heck of a lot of a better team and campaign and we outperformed on all the metrics and like all these things were, were fantastic. I, I, I believe that. I think frankly, that, that sounds reasonable. Um, I, I'm curious, like, were there big roles on, you know, where your, your kind of back casting of the timeline, you know, was off or where the staffing strategy you, you took was off? Like if you were to go back in time, you know, to that moment when you started at the campaign, you know, what would you do differently on the people ops strategy this time around? That's a, that's a great question. I mean, I, in, in full honesty, knowing everything I know right now, I don't think that there is, I don't think that the talent operations, you know, I don't think I, I don't, nothing comes to mind that I, that I think what, like there weren't like, there weren't like structural departments that, that I, you know, that I would have pushed you differently or something. I, I think it was more about, I mean, I think there's, yeah, there's, there's kind of two things in my mind. One of them is literally the question of like, what would I have done differently on that actual campaign? I, I, I don't think there's, I mean, I could, there's things I would have done, you know, I don't know, 
people I would have made better chance to have better relationships with earlier to like forestall all their headaches or that kind of thing. Like I could do my job. I obviously could have done stuff better, but, um, but in terms of the structural thing you're asking, I don't think that that's really where it showed up. It was more like what we were doing, not like who was there. I mean, obviously who's there like leads to what they do, but I I don't know if that, if that makes sense. I mean, what I think it's kind of, Am, am I hearing this kind of like more, what was the fit yeah, of the, you know, the message of the candidate, the campaign, and then the, and then the people? Yeah. I mean, my read was the, the, the most, I guess the most nuanced I would, I would say is I think that there was a breakdown in the feedback loop between our data, like somehow, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, I wasn't on the data team. I'm not an expert per se in this stuff, although, you know, I've, I've read a lot. So I, the views I hold are informed by a lot of stuff that I have seen and read. But my view is that somehow there was a breakdown in the feedback loop of the data about where we were polling and particularly, I guess, in key places, right? Because your national polls aren't really relevant. If you you need state-by-state specific polls to understand how you're going to perform electorally. There was a breakdown in how the fact that we thought we were further ahead than we were and therefore, there was no feedback loop kick in to change communications in certain places. And I, I don't even know, like, I don't even know exactly where I'm, I'm talking about, but presumably, like, if it was as close as it was and we knew that, presumably something would have been done differently at the end, like in the last couple of weeks. Um, and that data would have been interrogated and investigated and figure out, like, you know, I mean, it's the kind of thing of like, should she have gone to, like, Wisconsin again or something. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not money more inquiry backing. I, I don't know what the answer is, but I guess what I'm saying is it seemed to me that, that, that there was an opportunity to correct or improve is probably a better word, you know, something on the messaging communications front that just like, didn't get the message because we, I mean, I, I don't know, but I presumably, I think we thought that we were more further ahead than we were. Um, well, yeah. I, I think that there's a I think there is a common uncharitable read of politics, which is that candidates are just following the winds of the polls. And I think the I think the more charitable read, and probably in my estimation, the right one, um, is that polls certainly inform what you know. And on the margins, there might be something kind of interesting there. But fundamentally, it comes back to you know the people are the people. They have a vision for something they want. I think it's far more like this kind of. CEO mode. I think yeah. you can be a great CEO yeah. and it's just not a fit at the at the right time for what you need. And so, you know, maybe the 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 charitable and again, I think accurate interpretation of this is like uh, Hillary was a was a fantastic candidate and leader who just didn't match the the time. And I'm sure, you know, if we do ever if this ever <laughs> does, you know, get if this is one of the episodes <laughs> we make public, I'm sure I'll get a ton of hate mail on this. But the uh, you know, the, the reality of this is of the people I know that have spent a lot of time with Hillary, the the universal yeah. opinion is yes. like smartest person in the room, incredibly energetic, incredibly brilliant. Uh, and whatever your issues are, uh, I'm sure they are, you know, the vast majority of people that have issues, you know, have not spent a lot of time there. And the people who have spent a lot of time with Hillary probably have very nuanced. Yep. Sure. This is where she has spikes and strengths and this is her weaknesses. Um, and yeah. you know what? That's true of everyone. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm less interested maybe in the Monday morning quarterbacking, but this opens up an interesting kind of vector that maybe we can get out of like the specific example of this campaign where, um, where I think it is hard to divorce the initial opinion yeah. from the outcome and the, the people involved and all of that. 
And I'm curious, kind of like what makes for a really excellent politician? I, I you can't say this person's going to get elected, but what are the what is you know what is the uh, you know the engine the pol- what is the politician engine in the same vein of the talent engine that makes somebody an incredible candidate? So, I mean, I guess with the caveat or, or with the consideration of like it's contextual to the race, I, I think that the number the, the the top things in my mind are authenticity and charisma. So charisma being like your ability to enroll and engage and energize other people and authenticity being like, are you being, are you being who you really are? And I think, again, I don't, I don't, and I think I can use examples of, well, like we talk about my wife's campaign as an example, or we could talk about, about Hillary, but there's a consistent, I think as you said, there's a consistent thing where like people who know Hillary are very clear that she's, she is much more you know, genuine, warm, funny, interesting. Like she's, she's an engaging dynamic person. And so for whatever reason, and I, again, I, you know, it's not my, I'm not my expertise, so I don't want to like, I'm not going to speak out of turn, but I think it's safe to say that for, you know, for large amounts of the population, there was something about the communication sort of, I don't say like almost like paradigm where like they felt like she wasn't being authentic. And, and, and I, I, I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to say like, in theory, it could be possible. I don't know, but it's possible that, you know, someone somewhere should have like made it their business to like try to figure out, like, it seems to me like she felt like she was, like, it's, to me, it looked like she was being somehow coached or encouraged, like into a box. And I think that, that the advice should have been like the other direction. I don't actually know whether someone's coaching into a box or not, but that was like the impression I have. Cause if you have someone who's engaging and dynamic in person, but like, some people are feeling like that's not coming through and maybe like your ads or what, you know, whatever you're, you're like speaking, like presumably someone's job who's in the communication space is to sort of like hack through that and be like, what's going on here. So I don't know. And I'm not, I'm not trying to diagnose anything too particular, but I would say that the authenticity piece feels like, you know, I'm trying to think of examples. Like <laughs> I'm thinking of, I hate to even do this, but it's like, I'm thinking of like, you know, the wall street speeches thing, right? Like, the I can't say which what her authentic thing would have been, but there was this whole. I remember there was this whole couple of days or weeks or where it's like they didn't. Even, you know, she's like, yeah, she spoke to Goldman Sachs, or whatever it was, and it's like any other person would have, could have, and just said like, yeah, they offered to pay me. They offered to pay me to speak. Like I didn't. You know, I I, I gave them my thoughts on this or that or whatever. But just, there's an owning it of like I actually think that that originally would have gone better. And, and and I think it feels like she was advised to sort of try to def- be defensive or something, or I don't know, or just try to like squash it. This is something in general in politics. I get why people are encouraged to like downplay, 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 but it's just so frustrating. It's like, just, just own it. Like, you know, just say what, say what you're thinking was, and if, if you are sorry for it. And I, you know, I'm not, again, I don't know about that example, but if you're sorry for a thing then say it and why, and if not, maybe don't say you're sorry and why. But I think there was this sense of, people want to see someone who's owning their full personality. And I think I remember early on, you know, when the, when the text from Hillary meme came out and the whole, the whole like motif of that was like, she's a boss and she kind of is a boss and she was, and she was doing a great job as secretary of state. And it's like that aesthetic, I don't know what it would have turned into, but they didn't go that route. Like early on in the campaign, they didn't go that route. They didn't go the, like, you know, she's a hard ass route. And I don't know, I don't know why. And I don't know what would happen if, if they did, but I would say that it certainly feels to me like there was a lot of juice there and a lot of genuine, like people who knew her were like, yeah, she's a boss. Like, that's why that's a funny meme. And it resonates. Cause like, that's her. And instead it was like, you know, I'm a champion for, and it's just sort of this sort of like, I don't know, 
this 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 markup on the campaign comms turned into this other thing. And so I don't know, there might be something there as well. But I think authenticity really comes across. People want to know, people want to feel that the person who's speaking to them is who they really are. Great. If we think about that, though, like the the authenticity and charisma piece being the kind of core of a good candidate, how do you kind of engineer the systems that support that? I mean, obviously, you have to be an authentic person, you have to be a charismatic person. But you know, if we think about the the same way we thought about talent as being this kind of engine, are there habits that you can get into? Are there tools that you can use? I mean, if like, if I wanted to run for, you know, for office, what's the kind of playbook that I should make sure that I do? Am I got a CRM that I'm running off of? Am I, you know, habitually reaching out to some people? Do I have, do I have like a structure? And I guess, what does my calendar look like? How do I allocate my time into kind of understanding this stuff and being a good candidate? Wow. Yes. There's a lot in there. So to take it most directly head on, I think running for office is similar to founding in that it's a whole thing, if that makes sense. I mean, like it's, it scales at whatever level, but pretty quickly, if you're running for anything other than like a town thing kind of thing, it's your priority while you're doing it. It's like your whole thing. And if you, in anything pretty quickly up the stack, it's like you're, you're, you're going like all day, every day for the entire time, because you don't want to have, you don't want anything. You want to leave it on the field. You don't want to feel like you could have done an extra hour. And the main activities are talking to voters and depending on your approach and where you are and everything, you know, fundraising is a thing as well, because you, you need to get, you need to have money to spend on voter contact. And so, as I said earlier, without getting into like each of the eras, each of the phases of a campaign to generally go over it, like in the beginning, you're kind of getting your early supporters, raising some money. You have a wave of time where you're recruiting volunteers and then, you know, then there's a period of time where your volunteers are kind of getting the word out, recruiting more volunteers and so on. And then, and you know, you're kind of ideally reaching voters with like media and you're, you're kind of getting your story out. But then there's the last phase of GOTV, which is get out the vote, which is like a pulse surge of activity, very, very specific kinds of targeted activity that costs money or at least costs time and energy if it's your volunteers doing it, where you're going out and like literally you're basically like pulling people to the polls, right? It's like the last weekend and typically if elections on a Tuesday, it's like Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday is GOTV. And you're, you're kind of getting out and you're like, you're like harvesting all of those positive ideas and goodwill that you've managed to build up and you're trying to surge over the finish line. So, I mean, the answer to your question is like, there's tool, it's like anything, right? There's tools for, there's all, there's like, there's voter data tools, there's fundraising management tools. I mean, there's a whole, it's just like any, like at this point, any SaaS ecosystem. Um, I think that, for what you're getting at, yeah, it's important to be organized. I think depending on what level of office, you know, you need, it's a combination of staff, like people supporting you. And then, you know, they need to be organized, i.e. probably using tools. So it kind of like, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's worth getting into all the specifics, but of like which tools and everything, but yes, there's, there's a whole, it's a whole thing. And it's, it's a pretty legible universe. Like if you're going to get into it, you know, unless you're like, which you shouldn't, well, shouldn't say shouldn't it would be potentially unwise to jump into any kind of a significant race you know without thinking about it much or at the last minute of your own thinking but if you're doing if as long as you're not doing that you know any any moderate amount of time and research and talking to folks if you're serious about it you know you can you can turn up like the key roles that you'll need and you know you need a campaign manager yeah, and we, so on and so forth and and we could we could do probably another you know 
yeah, they're doing seven whole... hours on just that. <laughs> yeah. How could I learn from that to make me more effective as either an executive or a person? And so, for example, like when I think about politicians I know or just people who are like really good friends that I admire on this front, they've got kind of, you know, habits and a CRM and a thoughtfulness and a connection with people. Like they've just got a bunch of things that make them feel like a politician, like this kind of like this natural thing. They connect with everyone really effortlessly. They remember your birthday. They, they, you know, they connect you with uh, relevant ideas. What are the kind of things that we could learn as individuals from the decades of thought that's going into like how to be a good candidate? See, that's interesting. I subscribe to the notion currently that there's much more to be learned going the other direction, specifically from, I think, campaigns, candidates, and to some extent, politics and government can learn a lot more from effective. I mean, I, I guess my model for when I think of like, I don't know, private sectors or CEOs, like I think of people who are in the genre of like high research, high footprint of getting best practices off the internet kind of thing, high best practices of tools. Like typically, I think those people are actually ahead. So, you know, compared to literally a startup CEO who's kind of who knows the playbook, so to speak, um, or at least is decent at it. Like that person's, I don't know how much they would learn from most of your candidates running for office. The one thing I would say, the most relevant, beneficial thing that I think shows up really more like it's like after after you win, I guess, is just, just like your ability to get in touch with anybody you want to get in touch with. I mean, like, again, scaling to whatever scope of the office you ran for and, you know, the vicinity of the orbit of people around, like that is something that I think, let me put it this way. One thing that may not strike CEOs and founders as being, it just may not be on their, like on their radar as much as, as it, you know, if it was, they might value and might think about ways of contributing civically. But I do think that there's something, and I think it's good. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like there's something about being an elected official that people will pick up the phone when you call and they 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 will answer your questions about what they think about this or what do they need or you know whatever. So I guess I don't want to disappoint the answer but I I would say there's an old school mentality that's still in I'm generalizing terribly, you know, much of the many of the elected officials and candidates, you know, there's a younger crop of generation, there's organizations out there that have young candidates are supporting like the arena is a really a good one that like is kind of on the pulse of I don't know modern modern sensibilities about you know, like high energy campaigns, but that's still the minority. I mean, that's still like not the, the majority of people running. So, and I think that, I think that the learning vector, it was still that politics has more to learn from startup land than the other, than the other direction. I think that's fair. And if I put myself in the seat of a, you know, a product driven CEO, you know, someone who's just excellent at product and understanding customers and solving their needs and such, I do think that a lot of those folks don't have the, I'm going to call it two things. One is the maybe gravitas of office, right? So people don't see the need to, to kind of pick up the phone for them. But fairly often, you know, a couple dozen times a year, I will see somebody break out who clearly does not have any reason that people should take their call, but they seem to just be very good at, at getting in touch with whoever they need to and knowing who are the kind of important people to win over on their sides. And I think that's, you know, that's a skill that politics, I think, does a better job of. Yeah. Are there things that I, that, you know, I could learn or, you know, a seed stage product CEO could learn from that skill set that politicians seem to have really, you know, honed in on? 
I don't know about the learning thing. I mean, again, I think it's, it, it, there's less systems there. It's less complicated than it may look. I think it's, if you make it a priority to understand the political and social and say, power dynamics of a place, and I mean, a community or, you know, some, some level of society, and that includes the business community as well. Like, you know, if you make it your business to know and care about that, like, you can do that and you can start to get benefit from that. I mean, I don't think it's different. It's like something like the VC CEO dynamics that are the endless, you know, endless, endless Twittering discussions about the latest round of those dynamics. I mean, that's an example, right. Of like a very specific type of business relationship these days. That's important for that community, knowing who's who and who's credible and who's helpful and all the things. I I think it's, it's just like that. I, I don't think there's anything else there that's, I don't think there's anything else there that's overly insightful other than other than like the juice is worth the squeeze kind of thing, right? Like I just don't think a lot of people necessarily do the work to figure out and map like for their community or for their, I guess, so you're using the business example, like for their business, what's the extended ecosystem? I mean, like if you want to take it back to talent, if I'm the startup, if I'm a CEO of a startup, like I want to have a list of candidates, potential or at least archetype role model executive candidates who I, I can't get right now, or, or maybe I wouldn't even want right now, or don't need right now, but who represent the kind of people that if the company is successful in the ways that you want it to be successful, like should be and would become, you know, my lieutenants and executives and so on, like as the company grows, like I would want that list. And so if you don't have that list, either it's because you didn't do the research or you're not, or you don't know, or there's something you don't know about your business that you should be trying to actively figure out or some combination, but not to force a connection there, but that just popped in my mind. Like I do think mapping the executive talent landscape. One of the things that has informed how I think about how organizations work, this is not going to, this is not like news to anybody, but I think it's relevant. The way that politics operates with principles, so principles being candidates or electeds or sometimes like appointed, not elected people, but appointed, you know, like cabinet secretaries are principles. They're, they're the people who are in charge, right? And their staffs, their job is to be essentially extensions of that person. And they, they are there to make them be able to do their job effectively. I think that there's more, I'm seeing now more ways in companies that that is happening without people talking about it or being open that that is the dynamic. I mean, look, everyone knows like the executives are in charge kind of thing. So in that way, again, it's no, not news to anybody, but you know, in politics, it's like, a lot of your job is to do what your principal asks. It's a lot of your job is not, you know, in this, I'm generalizing again, but like most successful and most of the most entrenched, let's say most of the people who've been working as operatives in politics for the longest time, typically they, they're savvy, but you know, they, they don't, they haven't gotten to where they've gotten necessarily because they're like the most creative or something. Like they don't problem solving in the way that we would think in a company is not really what they're, what the people are doing. They may be looking out for risks and they may be looking for downsides, but mostly especially on the campaign side, mostly those people are just really good at like working really hard and doing what they've asked. And if anything, again, I'm generalizing in a way that doesn't sound charitable, but if anything, they're really good at doing what they're told to do, even if they don't know it's the best thing. And I think that that's interesting to, to, to understand. Like, it's almost like, I guess what I'm trying to say is at any company that I'm going into and seeing these patterns, I'm trying to figure out like how much is the principal effect in play for these executives versus moderating, you know, the, the executive structure, whether it's by department or like collectively across the organization, how much is this executive team moderating a powerful team of engines that are capable of these functions, which I would say is, I would sort of argue is more 
anti-fragile or whatever, you know, more, more, um, more formidable. It's a better way, I think. Or how much is it like these executives are just like in charge and they're sort of just calling the shots, which I think is a fragile, you know, environment, even if they're calling the right shots for a while, it's just like, it's just like, there's more ways to fail, right? If you have like, so anyway, I think that's, that's like maybe the other piece that I would, I would observe from politics. I think is relevant to look at for your company. Kind of the resiliency of design or something. Yeah. Like it's, it's easy to, it's easy to think that you want exactly who are just going to like kind of know what to do, but (laughs) someday they're not going to know what to do. And you want your teams, if you train your teams to be rule you know order followers like they will and then the day that you need them to have come up with the idea they're not gonna have come up with the idea and you know it's like you're gonna you're gonna have problems i think that makes sense i'm cognizant of the fact that i've uh taken up a lot of your time so uh, i appreciate it there's a ton of interesting stuff to dive into and i think we've got uh some pretty insightful stuff here i want to kind of tie a couple of uh, threads closed um as we kind of you know near the end of this episode sure and certainly there are you know five different branching paths we could take into new episodes later. But one of the things that I think is very interesting is this concept of kind of critical roles that are underappreciated. And in, in politics, I actually think of historically this being the chief of staff role. Mm-hmm. And I loved the book, The Gatekeepers, talking about all the different kind of structures that presidents have tried and then gone, oh, uh, my idea was bad. I'm going to go back to the chief of staff role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Turns out to be really critical. And as the the people ops kind of, you know, leader and the first one in a presidential campaign, I think you may be kind of a a sign or harbinger of the future where I suspect that more and more and more campaigns will think thoughtfully about this and will have a, you know, a high level of of directed attitude towards this. Um, Is my read on that fair? Do you think that this is one of those roles that really is kind of uh, state changing or future changing? Or was this an experiment that was more nuanced? Well, as far as I'm aware, you know, the, um, the directives for that's going back to the legacy document, right? Like the, the learnings that the operations department carried forward, certainly, I think certainly included the, the sort of sense of like, this was a good role to have. So in that, in that regard, technically, I think it's in the, it's in the recommended consideration set. There's something that's interesting about Hillary's campaign though, which is, if you remember, first of all, she's Hillary Clinton and had access to a lot of political capital and, you know, money and so on. And nature of that silent primary where, you know, it was basically her running and then Bernie jumped in, like we were able to plan ahead and get as big enough as we were, we knew we were going to get big on the front end. And so when you look at like 2020, I mean, I'm not aware of any talent directors. There may be people, I just something I should know. Right. But I'm kind of, you know, life's been busy. I got married, all that kind of stuff, but I, I don't know who's at each of the, 2020 Dems, I don't know who's in charge of their people stuff um, at each one, but I guess what I'm trying to say is those campaigns don't necessarily like have the same organizational structure, uh, what's the word, foresight to know that they could even make use of that role. That makes sense. Like as I say, they've hired slower. They've hired fewer people. They're smaller. They've hired more. I'm sure they've hired a lot of like people they knew and that kind of thing. So I, I actually think that it may be more rare to have the scale relevant, if that makes sense, for what the needs are in that environment. Now, I mean, you know, if you're talking about, I mean, obviously in the private sector, there's there's plenty of VP people roles out there. But I mean, in terms of, I think it's I think that's like obvious for me, right? It's my lens, so I always immediately I'm like fixated and tuned to: is there a people partner who's is there a people partner who is a true partner to the CEO? 
whatever the title is and whatever the dynamic is, is there someone who's overseeing an actual competency that's, again, compounding and accumulating and everything or not? And, you know, a lot of cases there isn't, or it's a more traditional HR setup or, or whatever. So I do think it's weirdly under, whatever you said, underappreciated but important, despite how many people say people's the most important thing, that kind of stuff. But as for politics, I don't know. I think it, I think that it's it's another weird thing, which is if you're if your campaign manager. I mean, look, the the number one people person at a at a startup is the CEO, right? Because the CEO, so much of culture and their views and who they pick. I mean, you know, they're shaping the thing. So similarly, you know, is it possible that a campaign who just like has somebody who's really good at the people stuff is probably not the campaign manager, but like you know, one of the head positions can just sort of quote unquote just do it, like. I'm talking about smaller campaigns now, like that's probably more likely. I think it's more like, can campaigns learn to operate better in management and, you know, whatever, have a little bit of insight about the recruiting side. But by the way, going back to the Moneyball thing, I mean, it's classic campaigns is you take people who want to work there and a lot of them haven't done it before. That's just, that's just what it is. So that's a talent market where, and it's weird, right? Because every time there's a campaign, someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. So this is this thing where you can't, you can't overlearn from it. Like, but I guess what I'm saying is if you're looking for if you're looking for a sector where there is structural evidence that people who didn't haven't done it before can win, like look no further than politics, right? Like it happens all the time. And some of that is is explained by someone has to win, but like I would I would from my observations to generalize, I would say there's it's a good case study of how passion and commitment and, and hard work can overcome like odds consistently. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. And to to use that to kind of tie up the final two loose ends, when you think about that kind of money ball approach, I think it's important to have the structures around those people so that they can be successful. Part of it's their passion and energy, but also part of it is recognizing that they are learning and you don't want to just you want to throw them in the deep end, but you don't want to throw them into the bottom of the pool. Mm-hmm. Yes. So they may, right. they may sink a little bit, but if they start at the top, <laughs> it's a lot easier to recover. Yeah. So two maybe rapid fire questions on the people ops stuff. The first thing is, what does great onboarding look like? When somebody transitions from, we found them, we hired them into, we're going to put them in. What, is that, what does that look like? So really clear expectations about how we're going to work. So establishing a sacred cadence of one-on-ones that don't move, they don't get shifted, where each one-on-one check-in is the direct reports time. This is the high output management stuff, right? It's their time to raise whatever things they need. But you know, there should be a template, a sort of agenda structure that's like, this is my current list of priorities. And by that, I mean a very specific thing. The thing at the bottom of the list, if anything's going to fail this week, it's the thing at the bottom of the list. We agree about that. And that's the second to last and so on. So the first thing on the list should be the last thing that's ever going to fail. That's important. You know, the whole like flags, obstacles, specific requests, you know, there's a little ingredient soup depending on your setup of what things you need to raise. But having that check-in every week is very important. And I think generally using the examples of the interns from the town interns of the Hillary campaign, which I, I give sometimes is... I was very clear with them. I said, I'm going to train you to do things that staff would be doing. And so that's exciting. It's also real responsibility. Here's how it's going to go. Three months from now, you're going to be running this meeting. So today I'm going to run the meeting. You're going to watch next month. You're going to draft the agendas and you're going to draft all the materials and I'm going to run the meeting, but you're going to like answer the questions on the third month, you know, the second month I'm going to be there, but you're going to run the meeting and then you're going to handle the questions unless you can, then I'll handle them. And then the third month, I'm not going to be there. So I think like making a ramp is that's clear in advance. Uh, and this goes to the like people 
ideally are growing and developing thing. And so how do you use that to your advantage? Like make the ramps, define them. Uh, Ben Horowitz has a thing that's like, not just saying like, if you want to be a director of sales, you got to be able to close 10 deals. But you could say like, his thing was like, you know, be like Gary. Like we have an actual role model that's like there and he, he you can like see Gary in the organization. It's like, if you want to be a director, you got to be, you know, you can, you got to be able to do what Gary can do. Like, I don't know about that example in particular, but I think there's something to be said for that. You want to be concrete and specific. And so whether that's categorical or referential to other things in the organization, you know, I think that you might run into some problems with only doing the thing he said, but like, I, I get why I think it's like the right idea, right? It's like, you want to paint a vivid picture of the ramp towards a new role. And then, and then it's like the, you know, I'm, what do you need from me? I'm here. I'm support. I can give you support. So another thing I have is just like, I, I do subscribe to the, like, you know, no dumb questions kind of thing. Like if someone is under my management charge, I'm an open book to them and they know they can get a hold of me at any reasonable hour to ask any question. And I take it really seriously. And it's like, that's, that's part of the job. Part of the job is developing your people. And you're not, in my mind, you're not an executive in good standing. If you don't, if you don't, if you're not um, actively developing your people or at least, you know, at least having a sensibility about it. And it doesn't have to be like your main focus of time every week, but like, I just think it's an important thing to have running because it's someone once said, right? Like in a relationship, you're either, there's no standing still. You're either becoming closer with somebody or you're, or you're drifting apart at any given time. I don't know about that. Seems like it might be right. So with an organization, it's like someone's either increasing their, again, resonance with an engagement with their employer, if you want to put it in dry words, or they're starting to drift. And the way that one manages a team is a huge influence on whether somebody is slowly drifting away and looking at other options or, or just whatever, just under, you know, just going to start to underperform or just get coasting or whatever, you know, versus, versus leaning in more and more. And so that's just straight up like that. Your your managers, not just your execs, but your managers, I think it's important for them to understand that dynamic and to be asking certainly on a monthly basis, you know, are there conversations? It doesn't take much, right? It's just, it's more, it's more of like a stance towards people than it is like a specific script or a specific thing to do. It's just like a way of being with them where you're like, your development is important to me and therefore I'm a resource for you, you know, make use of it. What can I do for you? I, that resonates strongly with me. So, uh, and actually addresses the, uh, the, the last, the last thing I was going to try to tie shut, which is how do you train people? I think that's a, that's an exceptionally good, uh, good summary of it. So with that, and with knowledge that we are, you know, deep, deep, deep into time here, <laughs> I want to do two things. One is I want to say thank you for coming on and like, and sharing a lot of this stuff. This is super interesting. I think it's just always fascinating to get somebody who's like actually lived through something and can kind of talk about close to the metal, what it looks like. Yeah. So thank you for being open and, uh, and, and going totally. deep with us and kind of give us a, a snapshot into, uh, into the things you've learned over the years. You bet. The second thing is I wanted to, uh, if there's anything that you're particularly looking for, or you want to talk about, or a way to contact you or find you or follow you, I want to give you the chance to, to share that with people. Yeah, gosh, that's a good question. There's a couple things I'm planning to become a little more active in. So on Twitter, I, um, what's the word? I, I read a lot. I don't say too much on Twitter. I'm, I'm going to plan to say a little more. So if folks are interested in some of the stuff we've talked about, that might be a good place. It's at Nathaniel Kolak. You know, certainly like I'm in the business of trying to help teams upgrade their people operations. So if folks want to check out formidable.services, that's my my site right now. I would say in terms of like interesting people I'm really interested in connecting with, I'm actually really curious about 
the like synthetic biology and emerging like bio, not like biotech, like pharma, like not the, not the stuff that's sort of the current large kind of already worked out models, but like the emerging class of new technologies and, you know, genomics and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know if there's folks who are interested in that or no founders or no hub like organizations that are in that space. That's like a curiosity I'd love to get into. Perfect. So let's let's pause there. Uh, go ahead and hang out for a second because I think given that I've got a, a small gift for you. But uh, but with that, we'll okay. we'll call it the end of episode one, uh, and maybe there'll be a two. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Tyler.